podcast is brought to you by Uh, 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 here we go Everybody be cool, this is a robbery Need you cool Are you cool? Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to your monthly worship service where we help rejuvenate your soul through the good works of our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino. I am the Reverend Scott K, and this is the Church of Tarantino podcast. If you're listening to this episode, then that means you, in fact, do have the steely nerve of a salted dog. And in our book, that makes you pretty fucking cool. Because you've chosen to listen to the official Kill Bill film retrospective in all its glorious, whole bloody affair form. That's right, motherfuckers. We put the whole thing together in one blockbuster-sized, action-packed episode, the way our Lord and Savior Quentin Tarantino always intended for it to be. But before we make out our kill list, commission a mysterious man from Okinawa to make us a samurai sword, learn how to punch holes into solid wood, and snatch people's eyes out of their fucking skulls, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, host of the Way Past Cool podcast, Mr. Steve Smith, and host of the Rocky Series podcast, the worst of the best podcast, and it's a long road to the Rainbow Series podcast, Mr. Ryan Rebelkin. Welcome back, gentlemen, and may Tarantino be with you both, always. Hello, Scott. Thank you for having me back. I'm very excited. And you always. This is a real pleasure to be here, Scott. So thank you for inviting me back. Well, I want to thank you both sincerely for filling in on such short notice. So the pleasure in this instance is all mine. Now, sadly, gentlemen, since we have such an enormous episode ahead of us, we don't have time for the usual jerk each other off, how's it going, chit-chat, I usually start with. So we're just going to have to jump right the fuck into my customary preliminary questions that I have for all my guests. But since you've both been on this show before, I've customized them for this episode specifically. So Mr. Smith, we'll start with you. In this film, who do you think has the best chance of landing a blow against the invincible Pai Mei? Well, I've got two possibilities, really. I know I'm cheating already. On one hand, I'm going to say the bride. Okay. Because he, he um, you know, he trained her with the uh, five-point palm exploding heart technique. He did, but it is his technique, just so I try to make sure you yeah, remember. Yeah, it's his technique. He's shown her, but he hasn't, I don't, I don't believe he's shown anyone else. No, I, because even Bill says in volume two, he says he shows no on that technique. Exactly. So she's got a better chance than anyone else. But then there's another side of me that thinks it'd be cool if um, Johnny Mo, the uh, leader of the crazy <laughs> The same guy. The yeah, exact yeah, the exactly. same case. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Gordon Liu or whatever his name. Well played, if, sir. Yeah. Well played. I so like you could that. Get, that would be a that would be a something that's probably well that it's happened before where you've, you've had one act of fight and two different people that that would just be a cool it would be i like that i like that so that's so johnny moe is selfishly what i would like to see but i think the bride would stand the best chance against my man all right i like that 
Mr. Rebalkin, I now pose the same question to you. In this film, who do you think has the best chance of landing a blow against Pai Mei? Well, this is an interesting uh, question, and uh, I'll give you my answer. And you might, I don't know if you'll disagree or not, but at first I thought it might have been Bill. Now, when Bill drops off Kiddo to be trained by Pai Mei, he comes down, his face is all punched up because he had a, you know, <laughs> they had a friendly or unfriendly contest. He says, yeah. <laughs> yeah, friendly contest. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, he's all beaten up. And you got to wonder, did Bill land any punches? Well, then when you see Pai Mei, Pai Mei looks completely undamaged from that scuffle with Bill. So I think Pai Mei probably pwned Bill. You know, one hundred percent. Yeah. So I will say, prime kiddo. I think prime kiddo. I think she is, for lack of a better term, she's the chosen one. I like that. That's why he eventually, as we get through this, gives her the the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. Because think about she kills Bill. So if she can kill Bill, and I know Bill is older in age, but so is Pai Mei. I mean, Pai Mei's a thousand years old, whatever. <laughs> uh, but. Uh, you know, she she outsmarts and kills Bill herself and the the whole uh, the whole gang. So I would just argue, Prime Kiddo, whatever that Prime may be, she has the best chance of landing the blow against Pai Mei. Of course, Pai Mei cannot be destroyed only through deception. Mr. Smith, of all the characters in this film, who would you kill, marry, smash, have sex with? For those of you who don't know what smash means, and eat to stay alive, not in any sexual connotations. And this may be the lead-up to something I might also be doing later on at a different date, but we'll talk about that another time. So who are you killing, marrying, smashing, and eating in this film? So kill, um, it's got to be Buck from the hospital. All right, why? Because he's a fucking piece of shit. That's why. You said Buck. I thought you said Bud. I apologize. Buck. Um, gotcha. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Buck. Because he's a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> You're not going to get any, no, any pushback from no. me on this. No, so he's killed that motherfucker. He's the one. Now, marry Sophie Fatale. Sophie Fatale. All oh, right. She, okay. Hey, right, like, okay. No, you're not wrong. The fatale, fatale is good. Yeah, I'm going to bear my soul a little bit here, okay? Hey, she's fucking, she's fucking hot. She is. 100% agree. She's got very nice feet as well. <laughs> she does because they do show her uh, her open towed shoes as she drives a vehicle. Very nice feet. Okay, now, this is where it gets tricky. Uh, are we moving on to Smash? All right, so... We're we, gonna so sma- we're, who are we're we gonna smashing? Smash. We're Come smashing. Go, 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 Yabahari. Oh, <laughs> you think you're going to penetrate her, or is she going to penetrate you, my friend? Oh, what do you think is going to happen? No, if anything... <laughs> If it's going to be that weapon of hers, I'm in trouble. <laughs> um, but yeah, because she's right. cute. She's cute, and she's got them knee-high socks. So hey, you you don't have to. You do not have to sell it to me. I'm with you. I, sh- there's a lot of attractive females in the length of this film that we'll leave it there. The problem, right? So now we've got the problem of who would I eat to stay alive? Who would you eat to stay alive? I'm gonna have to cop out a little bit here because Uh-oh. I think. Oh, don't cop out. I think like. Because I said Buck is who I'd kill, mm-hmm. but he, he's quite a big fella. That's the so I, I think I'd yeah, eat you, that you fucking can't see, guy. Uh, we are gonna we're not gonna allow you to circle back. You're gonna have to pick. Oh, oh man! He did bring a bigger fellow in with him. That guy looks like he eats a lot of barbecue. So Jasper looks like he eats a lot of barbecue. So let's go, Jasper. I'm gonna say there's probably no one. Who would have thought that would be your answers? And I like that. I like I like that as your answers. And yeah, that may so, or may not be the subject of a, another monthly podcast I might do in the fall. I, uh, it may, may or may not. I may have just tossed this out to just test the waters with it. And I already like it as it is. That was a journey into my mind that no one 
was ever asked to go into, but there you go. And that's why it was fun. Now, Mr. Balkan, of all the characters in this film, who would you kill, marry, smash, and eat? Well, kill right away Daryl Hannah as L Driver. Dead. Like that? Just like she is. <laughs> a combination of her character and Daryl Hannah's acting. I'm sorry. I just have a. She nope, is, I know you don't like it. I know. It's weird. I will go. I mean, we'll get to some of her scenes, but I, I'm not a fan of. I don't know if it's her acting or her character or both. Just unconvincing, irritating. She's irritating. Just she's an irritating character. She's definitely, <laughs> would kill, I'd kill her in a heartbeat. Uh, Mary, well, of course, uh, Beatrix Kiddo. I'm yep. just so in love with him with her. I can't help. Yep. I don't care. I, she's so gorgeous in this film. She is just eye candy. I don't care. It's prime. You know, she was pregnant or just had a baby. Yeah, she did. That's this. why they, yeah. they put out this filming to, for her to have the baby, which really works, obviously, because then she's a story about a mother and loss. So right, absolutely. So I mean, I'm just so in love with Uma Thurman in this film. I can't help it. So Mary Beatrix, because you know, if I marry yep. her, I'm going to have I'm going to have relations. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, Smash, I thought when I saw that, I love how you told me Smash, you put in parentheses, <laughs> have sex with. Thanks for clarifying. I, I, well, you know, I mean, I, I didn't want to be too coarse. Like, you know, who are you going to fuck? You know, I want to yeah, be like, we're, I'm Buck, we're here to fuck kind of thing. So I didn't want to go Buck's level. So I thought, you know, I'll use what the kids' terms is, and it's Smash. So there you go. Now, I cheated a little bit with this one because she only had a two-second part in it. Uh, Vivier Fox, <laughs> Vivica Fox. No, it's a good, it's a good answer. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, Vernita yeah. Green. I, I, I'm, I might be on board with you on that one for sure. Yeah, she's, she's a gorgeous woman. I mean, yes. So definitely, I would not uh, have any issues uh, rolling in the hay with her and eat Bud. But he is, he is he's definitely the more portly of the, of the people to to snack kind of keep you alive. He's got, I think he's got some good healthy meat on him. You know, he's not I too agree. old. He's got a little bit of extra fat on him. Yeah, I think to stay alive, I'd eat Bud. Fantastic. Now, Mr. Smith, who do you think is the deadliest character in the entirety of the Tarantino-verse? So that will include all 12 films. To me, that's the Tarantino-verse. I'm not saying just his filmography that he's directed. I'm talking about the 12 that we are on this journey going through. This seems like a cop-out. The bride is just the deadliest of the deadly. Okay. That wouldn't be my answer, but I, I like that as your answer. Well, if you're going to look at, you know, you got to look at Kill Count. Surely she's True. got the highest... She's got True. the highest kill count of anyone. She doesn't, though. Um, I, I, She's okay. second. The ooh, boys from ooh. the Inglorious Bastards, Mr. Donnie Donowitz and Omar, ah, they have the highest. They, no, hey. That's, hey, that's two people, But they man. do over 200. She's in around 70. If I, You know, I published this. I already put this out on social. Yeah, but, no, but you know Come what? On. You're, you're, you're not taking into account all the people the bride has killed. Listen, I'm just going with what I've got she in front was, of me. Hey, How many people she, have they killed in the war themselves prior to this? I'm uh, just saying. They're okay, professionals. Okay. okay, yeah, but that's two people. Um, but I'm, Navi, you said the deadliest. I didn't say who killed the most. I just said who's the deadliest. Who's She's the person the deadliest. you don't want to cross? Hey. Hey, listen, them two fucks with their machine <laughs> without their machine guns, they're nothing. They're I just, get you. I, I'm yeah, with you. Take the weapons away. Yeah. I think she's number two. Okay. I, I think I think her master, who lived for a thousand years and who took out an entire Shaolin temple by himself and has not been killed outside of being treacherously assassinated by some one eyed broad. I do like Pai Mei. I was gonna say, fuck that. He he got killed by a fish head. I understand. I get that. This is why it's subjective. This That's is why it's belief. subjective. My, exactly. belief, my belief is the surprise. Because Prime May got killed with a fucking fish head by, by some crazed bitch with one eye. <laughs> Spoken like a true cranky old fart. Now, Mr. Balkan, who do you think is the deadliest character in the Tarantino verse? Yeah, this is, I'm going to say an unfair question, but it should be obvious. And again, so we're talking about Pi May again. 
I mean, if we're talking hand-to-hand yeah. abilities, yeah, anyone can get a gun to shoot anybody. That's not what we're talking about here, because even Pai Mei was killed by poison. So when I think of deadliest character, I guess I'm arguing if you put them in the ring, yeah. just using their own bodies and they're all wearing yep. underwear. Who's and, the one person you don't ever want to cross and come across? Yeah. You know, who's the person no, who's, Pai you know, is, <laughs> she makes you shit your scary. pants? scary. He's, he he's, is. Yeah, he's absolutely scary. And he's a thousand years old. Just imagine when he was like a couple when he was younger. You know what I mean? Like if he's this good at a thousand, can't imagine when he's midlife at 500 years old how tough he must now, be. Now, did they ever say in the film he was a thousand? Did they say those words or was it just because of the date? That... So it's because of the story, you know? So it's kind of right. like this myth of, oh, he's almost like yeah. a Yoda character, except he's just evil yeah. Yoda. I, I love how in this world it's a quote unquote reality. Like there's very little in this film that c- couldn't that actually couldn't happen, <laughs> but we have this character that's almost mythical. It's interesting, Mister Smith. Who do you think has the best weapon in the Tarantino verse? Mm, again, this seems like I'm answering the same thing every time, but you know, the bride's Hanzo sword. The Hanzo sword is definitely well, the... yeah, because she's got the sword and she's got the uh, exploding heart technique. So yeah, yeah, I think you know, guns can jam. Guns <laughs> can jam. Can. Okay, <laughs> but, but her Tory Hanzo, and that's and and also let's not let's not forget this is the ultimate Hanzo. Sword. Yes, yes, this is. This is a, he had a shelf full of those things. He yeah. made one. He made the ultimate for her. Yeah, so one that I'm will cut say, God. One that will. Well, cut we'll God. get back to that later. Yes, we will. That's what I think, Mr. Rebelkin. I now pose the same question to you. Who do you think has the best weapon? In the Tarantino verse, well, my favorite, and because I love swords and I love samurai swords, and I, I'm a knife guy, sword guy. I love the aesthetics of swords in film in general, so that's why I love this film so much. So, of course, Hatari Hanzo, he's got the best collection because he makes these things. So it's him. So yes. any sword that he makes is the best weapon. But uh, his collection or whatever it is, definitely Hatari Hanzo and his swords are just the coolest weapons. I mean, they're awesome. I'm on board with you for that. And now, gentlemen, we've come to the final question, and it's a new one, one that Mr. Rebalkin brought up to me when we were recording our Jackie Brown episode. So, Mr. Smith, you will have the luxury of being the first to answer this. Mr. Smith, whose career would you like to see Tarantino give a boost to in his final film, if it is, in fact, his final film? Okay. So, for me, actually pretty easy, this one for me, Mel Gibson. <laughs> Fantastic answer. Mel fucking Fucking Gibson. Gibson. Oh, boy. My my fucking man, Mel. Okay? I won't have a bad word said against Mel fucking Gibson. I'll tell you this now, okay? People can say what they want about Mel Gibson, but you're talking about... And I, I fuck them people. You're talking about Mad Max, okay? No, I get you. So if, if we're going to go with an actor as the body of work, Mel Gibson has done some amazing work. That's unquestionable. Much like I feel like Tom Cruise the same. I feel like if we go by the actor's body of work, the two of them have been in some unbelievable films and have pulled off some unbelievable performances. And all the accolades they've gotten for them, they well deserve. That being said, when the cameras turn off and those people aren't in front of them anymore, one is one of the craziest people on the planet, and one may be the biggest bigot, <laughs> drunk piece of shit in a long time. But, as you're saying, this is a chance to be in front of the camera. Would you see him as being a villain, or do you think they would put him in as a hero? Where would you see him better used? I think it'd be good as a hero. I'd like him as a hero. I think, you know, people can redeem themselves. People can learn. I agree. I agree. Okay? And Gibson could use 
<laughs> he could do both. Both. so he, could. he would get the he would get the food so that's my answer <laughs> nothing surprises me you inglorious son of a bitch all right mr Rebulkin, it is now your turn to answer your very own question whose career would you like to see tarantino give a boost to with his last film if in fact this is his last film well this is a tough one because if you were to ask me maybe 10, 15 years ago, before Stallone did Creed, and he had a bit of a comeback with his Rambo film, and uh, like Rambo 4, and then his Creed films. But there was a time that Stallone was, you know, his movies were going straight to video, and they weren't drawing box office. And being sly, he reinvented himself. Um, He's not hurting. Like, he's doing a new TV show that's coming in November on Paramount Plus with Taylor Sheridan, who wrote Yellowstone. So he's in good hands right now. His career doesn't need reviving. So I think... The new show that he's coming out called The Tulsa King will will showcase what I would have said or hoped that Sly would have had 10, 15 years ago by Tarantino. So I kind of have a new answer because Sly, does, I would love to see Sly. Look, I, I always said I would like to see any actor in a Tarantino film just to see what they do with Tarantino. Any actor. I don't care if it's Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth. It doesn't matter who. I you agree. Know, just seeing anyone under QT's direction is just amazing to watch. Except for Daryl I don't know why he couldn't help her. <laughs> I tried her. Um, that being said, uh, today, for today's actor, and I think he sort of had a resurgence a little bit with his last film that was kind of mocking his life a little bit or poking fun his life. But I'd like to see Nick Cage come back with a serious role. I'm with you. Yep, I'm with you. I think they're good friends, and I think they would be absolutely excellent. I think the range with which Cage and the the chances he's willing to take, especially with his newest film, I, I just think he's fantastic. I think he it would be excellent. I think the two of them would, would make gold. So we'll see if it happens. Here's some fucking facts, Jack. All right, gentlemen, it is about that time for me to impart some pie may like knowledge upon you about this film. Fucking, 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 in the whole bloody affair. That means both volume one and volume two. How many times do we hear the word fuck in this movie? Ah, oh, that's a that's a really tough question. I'm gonna say in total, I'm gonna go with like let's go with eighty-eight. Mr. Rebelkin, what is your guess? Oh boy, combined. I'm gonna go with well, I mean it was twenty-two for part two. I know part one had a little bit more. Again, I don't think it was like just, you know, so so much like pulp fiction. <sighs> Sixty-eight. Ooh, pretty close. 39. So it is oh. his fewest, I believe, oh, in, wow. in the Tarantino verse that I I thought there was remember. more in the first one. No, not as much. I know you would yeah. think, but uh, no, 39 okay. total. Body count. Gentlemen, how many deaths are there in the whole bloody affair? Well, it was 11 in the second one. I'm going to go with, you know what? I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with 79. All right, Mr. Smith, care to wager a guess? Right, so Kill the Volume 2. Okay, so L Driver doesn't die. So how many deaths were there in Kill Bill 1? Can you remember? 95. 95. So 100? Pretty close. 106. A lot get killed in Volume 1, but not as many in Volume 2. Ooh, some bare feet sightings. It wouldn't be a Tarantino film if we didn't see some bare feet. So how many bare feet do we get to see in the whole bloody affair? Mr. Smith, I'll start with you. Well, I think you only get to see the bride's feet in Kill Bill 2. Am I right? One. No, you get to see more than just hers. God, this is like this is some <laughs> tough contest. I'm obviously forgetting something here. I can't think, actually. Take a shot I in can't. the dark. So I'm including all the feet in Kill Bill 1. Oh, the whole well. entire movie. Yes, sir. 
12. Ooh, very close. Mr. Belkin, what is your guess? I think it was eight, you said, for the part two. So I'm just going to go. I'm just going to double it, but add a couple. 18. Very close. 14. Ooh. Yeah, there was more in volume two than there were in volume one, surprisingly enough. Is that right? Yes, sir. Is that right? Yes, yes. Next up. The motherfucking Tarantino-verse. In the whole bloody affair, there's a total of five concrete connections and five sort of. Here are our five concrete. Number one. There's a Red Apple cigarette ad in Tokyo's airport. Red Apple has also been in Pulp Fiction, From Dust Till Dawn, Four Rooms, in Glorious Bastards, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number two. Texas Ranger Earl McGraw returns along with his son, number one. Earl was also in From Dust Till Dawn and Death Proof, while his son, number one, was in Death Proof. Number three. Kim's Game of Death painted yellow Mustang in Death Proof has a little pussy wagon bumper sticker on it paying homage to the real pussy wagon from this film. Number four. The Acuna Boys is not only a gang in Acuna, Mexico, run by Senor Viejo, but it is also a fast food joint, and we see Arlene sipping from one of their cups in Death Proof, as well as Sharonda and Jackie Brown. Number five. And finally, in the lonely grave of Paula Schultz, the body that is exhumed so that the bride can be buried alive in her place belonged to the late wife of Dr. King Schultz from Django Unchained. And now for our sort ofs. First off, the sunglasses that the bride gets off a of buck are the same ones Clarence wears in True Romance. Next, Fox Force 5, the TV pilot that Mia Wallace was on in Pulp Fiction, is the basis for the Deadly Viper assassination squad from this movie. Albeit, the Fox Force 5 seemed to be a show about heroic women, while this movie, the divas, are nothing heroic about them at all. Thirdly, the song that plays while the bride swings one of the crazy 88 around by her sword. Tarantino uses the same music when Major Hellstrom arrives at Shoshana's movie theater in Inglorious Bastards. The straight razor and cowboy boots that the bride wears are the exact same ones that Mr. Blonde had in Reservoir Dogs. Michael Madsen loaned them to Miss Uma Thurman for this film. And lastly, there's belief amongst some in the fandom that the trucker who tries to rape the comatose bride in this film is Jasper from Death Proof, the redneck yokel who is selling the white challenger. And those were the facts, Jack. Sadly, we must now bid Mr. Rebelkin adieu, but fear not, he will rejoin us later in the second half of our show. But when we come back, Mr. Smith and I will be out for bloody revenge as we plunge headlong into volume one. Do you find it hard to focus at work? Do you find that you spend most of your time daydreaming about nonsensical situations? Do you have trouble sleeping? Do you find that you spend most of the night lying awake masturbating as you fixate on trying to answer a series of absolutely pointless yet provocative hypothetical questions? If you answered yes to any or all of these questions, then it is quite possible that you suffer from funk, the fear of not knowing. Hi, I'm the Tori Scott K, host of such obscure podcasts as Nobody Puts Nick in a Cage, Watch Us or Die, The Cheeky Bastards, and The Church of Tarantino. And I know what you're thinking. No, I'm not a medically trained doctor. But as a minimally successful podcaster, I believe I have the cure for your funk. Like you, I too lie awake at night wondering whom from the office I'd kill or whom from It's a Bug's Life I'd like to marry. And don't get me started on the countless sleepless nights I've had pondering whom I'd smash the shit out of from Goodfellas. And I won't even get into the stress it caused me trying to figure out whom I'd eat from the Michael Bay masterpiece, Armageddon. But fear not, my friends, because starting September 27th of 2022, I will be hosting a monthly podcast that will finally help you answer the questions that have left you unfulfilled and impotent in your everyday lives. Together with a special guest, we will finally get you the solutions to the hypothetical questions that you've been mulling over for far too long. We will finally help you solve which of your favorite fictional characters you would kill, marry, smash, and eat. Together, we will finally cure you of your funk, or at least help you waste about an hour of your day once a month. So join me in September and let the healing begin. 
now the gospel according to the almighty Tarantino. Chapter 7, 5-1. Kill Bill, 5-1. And now it's time for us to sharpen our swords and get ready for some bloody motherfucking revenge as we are doing Kill Bill Volume Fucking 1. And this fucking opens with another amazing way to introduce a character, especially a villain, much like we kind of get in Pulp Fiction when we do not see Marcellus Wallace here for the back of his head. For the major- or Actually, all we hear is his voice from the majority until we get the back of his head. We hardly see him until midway through the film. We actually get him face to face. We get the same thing for Bill as Bill in voiceover does that great do you find me sadistic monologue before shooting the bride in her motherfucking face, which he thought he killed her. We do not see this man throughout the entire length of this film, only parts of his body. And I absolutely love how they lead him up to be such an evil person. We don't get to see the person that we're supposed to kill, that we're supposed to be on board, that we need to kill this motherfucker until... We get to the second volume. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's just just brilliant, brilliant writing, brilliant piece of filming here. Now, as I've said, and I think you've chimed with me and others have, one of Tarantino's true masteries, besides writing, besides casting, is also his choice in music. And the Nancy Sinatra song, Bang Bang, literally tells the story of the bride and Bill. If you just sit there and listen to the words, the lyrics, it is basically the fucking wedding song for, for Bill and the Bride. I mean, literally, yeah. if you listen yeah. to the whole song, it's, it's it's such a perfect, perfect song choice. It's a very chilling piece of music. It gives me goosebumps right now. Not even hearing it, just thinking about it. I would put it up there with the theme from Pulp Fiction, Mizzaloo, the yeah. Dick Dale song. Oh, it's, that, it's got that epic vibe to it. But... Little Green Bag from Reservoir Dogs as well. Well, you know, he, we know we know what he does, you know. It's, it's just what he, he's just, he just knows. And as I'm getting older and taking more time at looking at these, besides them just being cool, you know, music choices, a lot of times, not only is it a cool music choice, but it's also very symbolic to what's happening in the film. You know, it's not just yeah. there to be, oh, it's a cool sound, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's more to Much it. Much like, you know, Stuck in the Middle is cool. It works well. But this is a part of the film. This is telling you a story and what you should be getting ready for. And that's yeah. just our prelude. And then we get the very first use of chapters in Tarantino's films, which would eventually parlay into him becoming an author anyways. But this is the first movie that he does it in. Do you know the other films outside of Kill Bill Volume 1 Volume 2 that he does chapters in? So, Inglorious Bastards? Yes. Hateful Eight? Yes. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? No, you were close. The, the last two answers you had were right. Once Upon a Time, he does not. There are no chapters. There are chapters in Inglorious Bastards and chapters in The Hateful Eight. Django Unchained does not get them. Death Proof does not get them. Once Upon a Time does not get them. These are the three films or four films, however you want to look at it. Kill Bill Volume 1 and Volume 2, Inglorious Bastards, and The Hateful Eight get chapters in the film. But this is the first. Yes. And who doesn't start off Chapter 1 with the number two? <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> and the great thing is it's the two and it's circled. So right off the bat, you're like, all right, I have no idea what that means. But you go, okay, number two. Let's see what this is about. Yeah. Now, we cover this pretty well coming up since this is the subject of our first Bible study. This is the, fight. the bride fighting Miss Vernita 
Green, or as she's known in this film as Jeannie Bell. Yeah. It also is what the culmination of this fight is what leads us to our discussion that we had in the birthday episode about a possible volume three and is what volume three in the lore of the fandom and the, you know, the hyperbole and the rumors online is all about is volume three. But we will tiptoe into this one since we have to. We get the first setup of learning about the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, or Divas for short, which knowing how this movie is designed and why he does it, it's corny as fuck that they're called Divas. However, I have a hard time thinking of Michael Madsen as a Diva, though. However... Because of what he's setting up, and because of you think about Pulp Fiction and Fox Force 5, it does work. Because of what it is, it's homage to Kung Fu and homage to Sam. Like, it works completely. But if it wasn't an homage, if someone just created a brand new movie, like, oh, my God, if you could, you're going to go see the new movie Divas? And you're like, the fuck's Divas about? Oh, it's the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad. You'd be like, the fuck are you talking about, Divas? This is Jean-Claude Van Damme. What is this, an even poorer man's Expendables? What are you talking about, the Divas? But because it's in this film, and because it's Terrence, and it's an homage. Anyone who's a fan of, of kung fu movies, especially from like the 70s and 80s, then this fits perfectly. Oh, but absolutely. Like, taking that out of context of this film, you're like, what the fuck is divas? I, I wonder if you sat there for a while and it was a real stretch. You know what I mean? He was like, he says, I got to get this to fit. There's got to be an anagram. I got to get something. I got to be able to spell something. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, I got it. Yeah. Uh, classic. Whose nickname would you want? Oh, I like um, L Drivers. As an L Driver or the Cottonmouth or the California Mountain Snake. That's what I'm talking about. California Mountain Snake. Yeah, California Mountain Snake. That sounds more badass to me than Cottonmouth. I hear you. And Black Mamba. I'm sure that's the name of a dildo, isn't it? Well, yes and no. So, yes, there is there is a Black Mamba dildo, and we'll leave it there. I think everyone can figure out. I mean, so I've heard. Yes. So I've heard. I mean, you know. Yeah, like I said, your search history, we do not want to get into. It's going to be very alarming. <laughs> For the best. MI6 might be paying you a visit soon. <laughs> I, I, I've got, I can hear sirens outside. I like Black Mamba, not because of the dildo, as you do, but because one of my favorite basketball players over here in America was Kobe Bryant, and his nickname in the second half of his career was Black Mamba. So ah, I like okay. it. it. And the funny thing is, it's around the same time that he switched over to that, that moniker. So, ah, right, yes, okay. so I, I like that one. But I just thought, you know, I'd find out which diva you'd be. You know, I want to know what diva you are. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Now you know. Now, as we talked about on the Bible study, we talk about the revenge jingles, I like to call it. Did you know originally, now when I read the original script, the person who was supposed to do the music originally was Lars Ulrich from Metallica. He was originally going to be doing the music for this. And he was supposed to come up with whether it was going to be some kind of drum or something for then. Obviously, it was Rizzo from the Wu-Tang Clan ended up doing it. And of course, as we talk about, you can learn about what it actually comes from. But I absolutely love it. I absolutely loved it. I remember reading it, and I remember it saying that there would be this musical cue that would let you know every time you heard this musical cue, you would know that this was someone that she had to get revenge on. Actually, do you know the people who don't get that musical cue? But? But is one of them, yes. And Bill. Yes. Are they the only two? They are the only two. Vernita Green gets the music cue, obviously, because that's about to happen in the beginning. Yeah. Sophie Fatale gets it when she's in the bathroom. That's true. 
And, of course, uh, Oren gets it when she sees her when she comes out. She's standing behind Sophie, one-armed Sophie. Yeah. El Driver gets it when, what's her name, at the top of the hill, looking down at her going into Bud's trailer. Bud doesn't yeah. get it because she technically never sees Bud in time. No. You know, we don't get that chance, that face-to-face. And then Bill doesn't get it because I think when she makes that corner at the end of Volume 2, she sees her daughter. And she sees Bill. And so that never happens. We don't get that moment. So she sort of sees that daughter first. Yeah, yeah. So we never get that moment. So those are the only two. Bud and Bill, the brothers, do not get the scorn look from the brother. Mm, Yeah, true. Now, as we talk about, this is a damn good fight. This is a damn, this is a way you start off a movie. When you want to start off your first action film, this is a way to start off an action film. This is fair. With some serious ass whipping. Just serious, straight up. Ass whipping. Now we get into this. I was said I feel bad because we get into this a lot in the Bible. So we go through this pretty. We good. do. We do. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. we still haven't decided. So what kind of dog do we think they have? We talk a little bit more about when you, the folks when you listen to the Bible, so you understand. We go into this a little more in depth. But we're trying to figure out what kind of dog must they have that when Vernita tells her daughter that her no good dog. Acted a fool, not only destroyed the living room, but also got two women bloodied. What kind of dog do we think they must have? Well, I think the comedy effect, it would have to be like a chihuahua or something, like really small. Do you know what I mean? So comedy would be great. Like, but in reality, well, no, what just, kind of dog must it be to inflict that kind of damage? Well, to do that kind of damage, I guess, like a, I don't know, a fucking Rottweiler. Yeah, I'm going with like a Rottweiler or yeah. what, what was the kind of dog in Turner and Hooch? Uh, I think that was uh, like um, a, sort of a Mastiff? Or, uh, yeah, probably. But no, I, I just think that'd be funny for the little dog, for the little girl. You know, for the mum to say the dog did this, and the little girl's like, "What the fucking poodle?" Yeah, one, one of those little teacup chihuahuas that fits in a purse. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that'd be what that was. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> that's what. I, uh, yeah, I, I, well, I would like to see that. Like when she said it, you saw the little dog poke his head around the corner, and that's like yeah. a poodle or something. That would have been quite. I think. Now, Vernita Green mentions after the fight, and she's they're kind of relaxing a bit while she's going to fix Nikki's cereal and shit and getting her coffee, that she coaches T-ball. What kind of T-ball coach do we think Vernita Green is? Has she fallen into the role of housewife Jeannie Bell, and she's, you know, she's Miss Prim and Proper and lives in suburbia and, you know, just kind of keeps all the white Karen moms in the suburbia. They feel safe because she's just one of them, or do you think She's like a really tough nose, like Mike Dicka, like yelling at kids, like a real tough ass, like she is in real life as a T-ball coach. I think I think she does that, like she pulls people aside in, in secret and teaches them dirty tricks. <laughs> she, she's smiling and then leans in, like whispers, if you fuck up one more time, I'm going to shove that bass so far up your ass. It's going to come out. He's just like kind of, but yet with a smile and then the mom doesn't yeah. know. <laughs> or she says something like, look, when that kid comes up running past you again, if you just stick your leg out that certain way, you'll break his fucking leg. <laughs> I really hope, I would love to see just a little, a 30 yeah. minute episode of behind the scenes of her T-ball. That's when her inner psycho comes out, isn't it? That's all she's got. It's the only competitive stuff in her life now. Again, folks, I feel like we're jipping you here, but I'm telling you, we cover this really well. And like you'll find when Mr. Rebalkin and I do the El Driver fight, we don't talk much about it because, again, Mr. Smith and I cover it really well in that second Bible study. So listen to the Bible studies to get more in-depth detail on the fight. But this chapter, the first chapter ends with us watching her go into the pussy wagon. We get the, you know, we get the introduction of the pussy wagon, one of the greatest vehicles in the history of everything. And... All of a sudden, 
she's sitting there looking at the house and she pulls out this tablet of paper and in front of it has a list. And we already have Oren Ishii's name crossed off and we're starting at number two and realize that number two is Miss Renita Green. Yeah. Now, I have recorded with Ryan prior to recording with you on this episode. And okay. what we discussed was, I think that that list that she makes, and we'll get into that list as we get going because it happens later in the film. I think that list is in order of people she thinks she can either find easier or almost like boss level. Like, obviously, Bill's five. But I think Bud was three and then L was four or maybe reverse. But I think she went by order of who she thinks she could kill easier. Because, obviously, Bud's got some training along with Bill. We don't know if he went with Pai Mei. But we do know that L got the least trained with Pai Mei for a while. So there seems to be a certain hierarchy of the divas who get the the better training, I guess. I, you know, I don't know, maybe depending on their levels and what, what he, Bill sends them off, who to kill, for what reasons. But it seems like there may be a hierarchy. How do you feel about that? I don't really know, but I can remember when uh, originally watched Kill Bill, and I saw Irinishi's name crossed out already. Obviously, at that point, I didn't even know who Irinishi was. So I thought she might just be a character that wasn't an important character that we never got to see being killed. Ah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, because we, we, obviously we know who Irinishi is now, but then yeah. we didn't. And I was like, yeah. oh, maybe that was just, who the fuck was that? And then, that I like that. Did, yeah, it was just kind of like, a, oh, well, put it this way. I didn't think much of it is what I'm saying. As we get down the line here in this movie, in this volume, when we do have her fight Oren, we should know she's going to win. But there is still a moment where we don't, where there is still a moment even in the fight that we're not 100% sure she's going to. You know what I mean? There's still that tension. Yeah. Oh, you know, we were kind of yeah. like, I don't know if she's going to win. Because, mm. You know, I know it yeah, says no, she's going to win, but we're like, hmm, maybe he's going to pull the rug over our eyes. So I can remember just thinking, like, oh, Oren, nah, not, who's that? Never mind. They're dead. Who cares? And how wrong I was. <laughs> I just think it was great balls to say, hey, guess what, folks? I've already told you. We've already killed one. You're seeing number two. And you're kind of like, oh. But then when we get to one, we see why he put one later because it is such an epic battle. It's fantastic. Absol- yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. That leads us to chapter two and the blood spattered bride. Now, this is where we get a great intro of Mr. Earl McGraw. For those of us who had seen From Dust Till Dawn years earlier, about eight years earlier, Remember right. Mr. Earl McGraw from the opening of that film and him having an untimely death at the Gecko Brothers' hands. And then all of a sudden, here he is with like 27 <laughs> sunglasses, which is an homage to Gone in 60 Seconds opening. That's correct. You're just like, oh my God, this is fantastic. And there he is. He pulls up with all this swagger Texas. And we learn that he's got a son. And yeah. his son is named number one. I know there's a from name for one. him. I forget what the name, I think it's Earl. I think it's the name maybe or something. There's a real name they have in the actual credits, but he only calls him son number one in both fucking movies that he's in with them together. And it is his real son, James yeah. Parks, who also, as you were already stepping all over, he is in Django Unchained, right. and he is OB in The Hateful Eight. He, I love him. They're, they're so good together. Great actors, both of them. Yeah. But he pulls up, and this is a great scene. I love this scene. But we learned that there's been a, a real massacre. And we walk in, and we don't know how, but we have an idea. And just the way he delivers his lines every time, I love... I, I wish Michael Parks was still alive. It's too bad that he is, is passed oh, and he's no, gone. Oh, no, very sad. But such a great... I would, I would love a, a movie of just Earl McGraw. I would love the yeah. movie of Earl that, McGraw. Do you know what? I bet you that could have happened. I hope he writes even just a book. Just a book. Because, you know, Quentin can definitely get the way Michael Parks delivers his lines in his head. And I think he could yeah. write a book that would really work. But I, who knows yeah. if it will. I yeah. don't know if such he even a cares. Gr- such, 
Such a great presence, that guy. One of my favorite moments in this is when he kneels down and they're looking at her. Look at that hayseed hair, blood spatter angel. And she spits. And we learn that she's got that spit. <laughs> this auto reflex, this spit reflex that she has that just happens out of the blue and she spits and hits him in the face. I don't know when he goes, son number one, this tall drink of cocksucker ain't dead. I fucking, <laughs> this tall drink of cocksucker ain't dead. Fucking love that delivery and the fucking line. It gets me every time it's been almost fucking 20 years. I love that line. I get so excited yeah. when it's coming up. I've said no, it out of the blue for no reason sometimes. Yeah, no, that is a classic line. Definitely. Oh, I did have a little giggle myself when I had it recently. Whenever I've killed a bug or I think I've killed a bug, like, you know, I've hit it with a fly and it's down, it's not dead yet, and I'll go, so number one, this tall drink of cocksucker ain't dead before I step on it. <laughs> it's got, it's, it's, you have to. From now on, folks, the Church of Tarantino signs off on you using that line when you have thought you killed something and then don't. Hopefully it's an insect or something else, but use it how you may. It's ripe for the picking. It's ripe for the motherfucking picking. So after... He says his great line. We then flash to her in a hospital bed in a coma. And Twisted Nerve starts to get whistled. And once again, we get another great villain introduction with L Driver, Daryl Hannah, who Ryan Rebelkin does not enjoy in this film at all. My guest from Jackie Brown, who's on volume two, does not enjoy her in this film, does not think she's very good. I disagree a bit. I, I enjoy her in this. I thought she was pretty good. However, yeah. again, another person's opinion. I don't have to agree with it, but if that's what he sees, then he's, he's welcome to it. Listen, everyone's entitled to my opinion, okay? And he's wrong. <laughs> he's wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I understand that. I mean, I enjoy her. I think... Uh, I think she lives in the moment of the character. Yeah, she plays it very broad, doesn't she? She's very sort of like a villain-esque. Kind she of. does play a very, very almost mustache twirling villain, but she's also yeah, she's, she's also playing it as a, a jealous scorned woman. She is very jealous of the bride, has been jealous all the time. She has been after Bill's affection for forever, and the bride has always got it, whether she was trying to or not. And I think she has been jealous. She knows the bride's better looking than her. She thinks that the bride's better at a better warrior than her. Like there's a lot, and she wants to like disprove all that. And so there's a lot of jealousy and hatred towards the bride that comes from her. And I think she puts it out in her character. But we get this great intro of her walking and whistling with that amazing eye patch that she then changes yeah. over to the Red Cross and the whole getting dressed up in the nurse's outfit and then going to kill her. So we get her introduction, and then we get Bill, and Bill's just sitting there, and he's playing with a Hanzo sword that we have don't know it's a Hanzo sword yet. No, we have but no he's playing of reference. with the Hanzo sword, and yeah. it's just, it's just him sitting there in that hand, opening it and kind of closing it, and it's so so well designed, such a great fucking moment in shot character. I mean, his introduction of characters are some of the best in cinematic history. He really knows how to introduce, especially villains. He just knows whether it's I don't show them or I give them the whole opening scene like an Inglorious Bastard. Like he just knows how to introduce them in a way that either we need to think about them and be like, "Ooh, who is this guy?" or like literally put it right in our face like a Hans Landa type intro. Yeah. Well, um, there's a revenge movie from the early 70s called um, Thriller, A Cruel Picture. Now, so you're not the first person to tell me of this. So, I re again, I we're going to do a little banter, folks. I recorded a Bible study for Death Proof before I recorded with you. Okay. I recorded a couple days ago. Okay. I saw your post of this movie you're speaking of. 
which yeah. when you folks here was about a couple weeks ago on your socials that will be in the show yeah. notes. And this gentleman I recorded with, Sean Wheeler, he brought it up. He actually had the DVD copy. He told me about it. So I yeah. am now in the process of also ordering that. And since next season, here's a little foreshadowing, folks. Since next season, I was thinking about spending the season going through each movie, talking about the movies that he references and yeah. talking about some of those movies. This movie, I feel, is definitely going to be along with Lady uh, Snowblood, Lady for, Snowblood the, yeah. for the for the Kill um, Bill series. Well, it's 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 a sort of minor reference. Um, yes, I know, and, but Drive, Tarantino but... thinks this is one of the most violent exploitation films ever made. This film is one fucking rough movie. It's from Sweden, made in about I think made in 1973. Yep, and it's about a young girl who gets coerced into prostitution, put her on heroin. And they scalp one of her eyes out. As you do in Sweden you, well, in the know, 70s. When in, when in, when in Sweden. Um, and basically, she puts money aside to train herself in martial arts, etc., to get her As revenge you do on her in Sweden. And I'll tell you, right, listen, this is a good fucking movie, okay? A lot of people say, oh, that's a horrible bear of pussies. This is a fucking great revenge movie. It's unlike anything else you've ever seen. It's got hardcore pornography in it. When they scalp their eye out, they use a real corpse. Wow. It's a fucking rough movie. I'm going to end this quickly because, you know, this, we're not talking about that film. But we will a year the from fas- now. The fashion, but yeah, but the fashion of Eldron kind of loosely based on the, the character from this film. Now, it's called um, Thriller, A Cruel Picture, which is the hard version of it. And there's also a soft, there's also a softer version called They Call I One Eye. I thought it was called Thriller for you pro-clutching pussies. No, yeah. they changed the name. It was it was short. They did anyway, but I I digress. It's just it's a great. It's one of the greatest revenge movies, but it's also probably, in my opinion, the roughest revenge movie. And it is awesome. And everyone should track it down. You can I think you can get it from Vinegar Syndrome, which is a kind of label like Arrow but for the American side of things. But it's great. Track it down. That's all I I'm will. Say. And we will be we'll talking co- about it in a year from now. Yeah, we'll I cover it later. It. But yes. anyway, that was it. I just wanted to get that in there because. It is fucking amazing. But anyway, so yeah, we're at the hospital. Yes, so I was going to ask you a question. I'm sorry. How was Bill able to get his daughter? Because obviously somehow he gets his daughter from the hospital. Considering there's a murder investigating surrounding the bride's circumstances, how is, do we think Bill was able to just ninja his way in and snatch his daughter out of the hospital? I have a theory. Ooh, she's already been thinking about this. Fantastic. Well, Vanita Green's husband is a doctor. Uh, well played, sir. They do live in California, but I, I'm, I'm going with you, so I see where this is going. Maybe, maybe he's, he sets well, her up the, afterwards. He's, I, he's got, the connect, got the connections, is what I'm saying. I haven't thought this through thoroughly, but that's a stretch. But Which would lean into why, we th- why uh, we'd be able to pass off that uh, he was killed by the bride that L kills him later on in our volume three. I'm liking Boom. the threads. The threads Same are tying up. Folks, it's this done. It Tarantino, let's is, fucking do this. We've got this. This already. is how it works, ladies and gentlemen. This is how it works, okay? So that's a theory. Possible. I do love, though, how Bill tells Elle that they have principles considering they just murdered her while their entire wedding party, and she's in a coma and took her baby. I like it. He's like, they're not going to murder her in her sleep because they have principles. Yeah. <laughs> it is, that's how well, you know that like, someone's a narcissist. Like, they, you know, you know they're a terrible person, but yet they still think they have principles. They still like, they still like to pretend that they're somehow have moral, some kind of moral compass, yet 
you know, to try to make right this bullshit they do. It's, it's just, I always find that line now that I've been researching, but just I always find that very funny that he's like, no, we have principles. He's like, she's losing her fucking mind. It's like, get the fuck out of here. Come on. Yeah, no, that's one of those, one of those funny little things where you think, uh, moral? Yeah, yeah. We will show up and we will murder all the people who do not have anything to do with our world because she had the balls to, to want to marry this guy in a church. We will beat the shit out of her while she is visibly pregnant, all of us, and then I will shoot her in the fucking head. If, and this is my only caveat, if somehow she survives all that, we will not put poison in her veins while she's sleeping in a coma. That's no. that's the line I will not cross. All this other an- stuff, we're, I will do. I won't do the other one. We're not animals there, you know. Now, when she wakes up from the coma, I did some research and I couldn't find anything. So if anybody listening to this finds this, reach out to us on the socials. It's in the show notes. I say that every time. No one reaches out. You sons of bitches. Not people do reach out. Can you tell how long you've been alive by counting lines in your hands? Like when she wakes up and she looks in her palm, and I'm like, what lines is she counting? Like I looked at my hand. I'm going, I don't think these lines have changed in years. But she looks at her hand. She goes, four years. I'm like, where does she get this four years shit? Like, is there some kind of palm reading? I mean, you're from yeah, England. You've got a bunch of gypsies over there. Is there some kind <laughs> of gypsy thing where you can read palms and know how long you've been in a coma? Like, is that a thing? Like, we're in fantasy land here. Right now. I get it, but I'm trying to, there's then it's got to be a movie reference, so I'm trying to figure out what's the reference, what kung fu movie is reference where someone looked at their hand and was able to tell that they've been in a coma or they just lived a span of four years had passed by looking at their hand. I have no answer for that. I don't know. Okay. I don't so we're know. leaving it up to you, the listener. Does anybody Clue know? Clue us in, guys. Why? Clue us in. Someone out there knows. And I will give you credit. I will put it on social, and then I will chime you out in another episode which will be a couple months from now. But please let us know if anyone knows why that's a fucking thing. So I, I'm just I'm curious as to how she looks at her hand and goes, oh, yep, there we go. Yeah, I have no idea. You got me on that one. Then we get Buck the Coma Fucker and his buddy the Trucker moment. <laughs> and... It is such a reprehensible scene, and Tarantino does a great job because as you're talking about the movie you were just speaking of, obviously he's a big fan of Grindhouse films. He's a big fan of B-movies. He's a big fan of exploitation movies. So he has seen movies like the one we talked about. He has seen Thriller. Absolutely. This is not the Michael Jackson video. This is nothing to do with Michael Jackson. Oh, no, it's just no. complete coincidence that they both would then 10 years Michael later ja- have a music. Michael Jackson, is fri- yeah, Michael Jackson is frightening for all kind of <laughs> different reasons. reasons. He doesn't show her being raped by Buck. We have this you know, flashback that she may, in her coma state, may have been lucid for a minute and remembers him saying, you know, my name's Buck and I'm here to fuck kind of thing. In a exploitation movie, they might might have shown a flashback to it happening yeah, and her waking yeah. up to it. So he doesn't do that. We don't need that. We just get that great line of dialogue that he delivers. And then obviously the results of what happens. <laughs> Two things. And this is a great nod to the prop master and a great nod to Tarantino. That Vaseline that he throws him is fucking just the most disgusting jar of Vaseline I have ever seen. Is it called Vaseline? I, th- I thought it was Vaseline. I thought, oh, well, maybe change it for the thing. But it's I, just I think disgusting. They, yeah, I think they changed Yeah. I think that's a brand name, isn't it? So I think they call it Vaseline. It actually sounds oh, worse. Vaselube sounds awful. Yeah. Vaseline is so much better. Yeah, but, but when he says, I'm Buck and I'm here to fuck, that's actually a line from um, yes. Toby Hooper's eating alive. 
Yes. Which um, Robert England says, actually, in, in Eating Alive. But, yeah, that's such a lie. But that leads to my second point. What kind of hospital in Dallas allows you to just get hired on with the name Buck on tattooed on your one hand and the word fuck tattooed on the other hand? Like, who's hiring an orderly or whatever he is, a doctor or nurse to just... Walk the hallways of their hospital with the words fuck tattooed on his fucking knuckles. And this is back in 2003. So this is before there's, you know, the the tattoo revolution of people getting hand tattoos and neck tattoos and face tattoos. This is prior to all this stuff happening. Yeah, Plus, did I mention knows. it's Texas? You I mean, you want to talk about watertight asshole conservative. Texas, there you go. Yeah. Uh, who knows how that worked? He was obviously fucking someone there. I don't know. <laughs> he, he, slept, he slept his way to the top, yeah. obviously. Now, she wakes up. Bites his lip to pull him close, and then, then rips his neck open. If anyone doesn't understand, you know, because they kind of cut from that, is she basically bit his lip and pulled him close, yeah. and then bit his juggler and ripped his neck out like she's a goddamn fucking tiger, and he dies. She's the deadliest woman alive. Yes, woman, deadliest woman alive. That's why. No, yeah, yeah. I guess. No, no. I'm just kidding. With you. The whole pie may thing. Never mind. You. It's late. It's late in England right now, folks. We're recording. He's a little loopy. Yeah. Buck says to his buddy, "You got 20 minutes. We'll be back in 20 minutes." Like I know we did a little cut, but it was a quick 20 minutes. Like I don't know they gave him the full 20. I'm just saying I don't think they gave him the full 20. It feels like it was really quick. Some horrible shit gets said in that moment. A lot of horrible shit. You know, but the delivery is so like matter of fact. It's so like yeah. Doesn't he say like no? Don't. He is going through the rules like he's going through the rules like he's a flight attendant. Like here's here's the safety rules for today's in flight. (laughs) He says something like he's something like he's like she's a spitter. It's a motor reflex, but spitter no spit, no punching, no biting, no just. No loose And he teeth. says, um, well, he says, um, a cooch is as dry as Yeah, sometimes a cooch is as dry as a bucket of sand, so you might need this. <laughs> so, uh, so when he does get murdered, and he gets, I mean, <laughs> I don't feel bad for Buck, but when she walks into the room and he's like, oh, he's like kind of blown away, what the fuck happened? And she cuts his fucking Achilles out from him. Man, that's got her. And then she's slamming his head in the door. He's like, please stop hitting me. <laughs> <It's> just... <Yeah. laughs> well, I guess, um, I guess Eli Roth stole that for Hostel, didn't he? Oh, yeah. He does that, yeah. he does that in Hostel, doesn't he? So I'm, I'm assuming he got yeah. that Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what a great, please stop hitting well, please stop doing that whatever he says. Every time a rapist or someone who has done some things to women, they, they usually meet their end in a Tarantino movie pretty pretty gruesomely. Pretty gruesomely. He's a very moralistic filmmaker, yeah. isn't he? So. And then we get the pussy wagon, the, the official introduction to the beautiful pussy wagon. <laughs> Again, a man driving a truck that says pussy wagon that parks in employee parking at the hospital has the words <laughs> fuck on his and knuckles tattooed. I'm just saying the hiring practices in Texas, Dallas especially, are very, very loose. I'm just saying. There's not a lot of vetting going on when they're hiring their night crew in Texas at, uh, again, uh, at this hospital. Just like Michael Jackson, he blended right into society unnoticed. This is true. <laughs> Physical acting in this film is fantastic. As you said, there's not a lot of dialogue for the most part, especially when, as we get further into this part. But the physical acting of Uma Thurman to the strain she shows of pulling herself into the pussy wagon to get herself in to the wagon. Because, you know, she, her body's an atrophy or most of her muscles. She can't move her legs. So she's using whatever body strength she has, which is obviously at that moment very little. And like she almost gets, she gets tears coming down her face from the strain she is exerting to get herself into this vehicle. Yeah, very great. Yeah, very good. It's uh, such a great moment. Great physical acting. Right. And then 
the cinematography and the shot selection that Tarantino has, and then Sally's editing of her saying, wiggle your big toe. And just looking at her feet, and you, we get the you know the close-ups, and we're all just sitting there waiting, like anticipating when will the toe wiggle? And they, you know, like we're almost with her, like come on, man, like wiggle your fucking toe. And they leave us in suspense because we move on to Oren Ishii, the origin of Oren. The origin of Oren Ishii. This takes such a turn because when he goes into anime, most films couldn't handle this. Most films that aren't, you know, like we talked about it in Natural Killers, he, you know, they did it there. But that was yeah. for a purpose. That was yeah, to kind of was... show the psyche. This goes in and we, I mean, we just go from live action to we're going to tell this whole section, which again, I think works because he's talking about a pedophile. Yeah, and also the violence that is shown. He could go as extreme as he wanted with it that way. I also think he's doing an homage to, I mean, a complete homage to Asian cinema at the oh, time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think he's covering a lot of ground. Yeah, he's got... Intentional, intentional or not, doing it anime style allowed him to get away with far more violence than he would have if it was live action. And also, as you pointed out, that was a nod to another style of Asian filming. And you don't want to get a child actress well, of course, to exactly, play young no. Ren to then have to do what the anime actress is able to do, which is she kind of uses her youngness to find he's a pedophile and almost sell herself to him and then get him in a vulnerable position yeah. and then be able to kill yeah. the, the boss uh, who kills her, her parents. Yeah, I mean, the anime just gives him carte blanche to just do what the fuck he wants to do. And what I love about that sequence is, and I, and I know I'm not on the, the Kill Bill Volume 2, but to tie them both in, what he does with the Oranishi scene and the, uh, the bride trying to get her feet to move, he does the same thing when the bride is buried. Yes, yes, we do a cutback, yes, yep. Yeah, because, because while you're watching the O-Ren sequence in, with the anime, you've totally sort of by then, you're so engrossed in that, you've forgotten that the bride is in the back of the pussy whack. Yes. Just like when you're watching the Pai Mai scene with all the groovy montages and everything, you, forget, you almost forget that the bride's actually buried six feet deep in the graveyard, so he just does this thing where you're just so engrossed in what's yeah, happening. Yeah, we in talked about it in Reservoir Dogs. He does it with the commode story. Absolutely, yeah. So he does this thing. He pulls you out of the story. You forget that uh, Mr. Orange has just revealed himself as the, yeah, the and rat, that's not even and now happening. we're in, yeah, we're in this commode like story. Saying, we like it's not even yeah. happening, and we're just totally yep. in there with it. So yep. the, the, the anime sequence, I think a lot of filmmakers would have got laughed out of the room when they if they would have come up with that in some kind of board. Well, he also decided to go to a great studio, and I forget the name of the studio, but they did a phenomenal job. It's one of my favorite animes I've ever watched. Like, it's up there with, again, it's only on a, a small section, obviously, but it's up there with, like, Akira. Like, it's a well-done anime. It probably is the same guys. Yeah, it could know. be. Now, did you know, in this, Mr. David Carradine says he's the man who kills Oren's father. Well, the I guy was, with the sword. You, yeah, you, QT you've got has never confirmed there. this, and I call bullshit, and I'll explain why. There's no way he could be the guy because there's no way Oren would have worked for him and not killed him. A, there's that, and B, I think in the credit sequence, that character is called, is it called Pretty Ricky or something? I think so, yes. I think yeah. because he's got the sword, but the sword, if you also watch the sword, does not have that no. devil, the Japanese uh, Oni symbol I that I mean. actually got a yeah. tattoo of on my arm yeah. that is on Bill's sword that he got from Hattori. So I get what yeah. David Carradine yeah. at the time was trying to say, but there's, in my opinion, there's no fucking way he's the same guy. And yes, I think it is like Pretty Ricky or something like that. Yeah, I think he was, he was probably whacked out his head on drugs at the time and like, <laughs> striking himself in a wardrobe somewhere. I don't know. But listen, 
That doesn't no, make narrative, makes no sense, narrative sense, does it? That no. He would be... Just like when we talked about Pi no, Mei being so, alive uh, in one of the but Bible I, studies. But I must admit... Pi Mei would not have allowed exactly, to yeah. poison him and not got not only revenge on her, but also killed Bill. Yeah. But I must admit, for a long time, I did think that was Bill. It just makes no sense, because she goes on a revenge to kill him. She would it never then go work for him. No. And I don't think Bill would let her yeah. work for him anyway. Yeah. I think Bill would kill no, him. Absolutely. He's not going to let someone who wants revenge on him to, to yeah. live, you know, if he knows this. Yeah. And to work for him, yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, so that doesn't quite add up. And I don't. And again, I you know we don't know the backstory of Bill, but I, he may be a, a treacherous motherfucker. But I don't see him working for someone who's a pedophile. I don't see that being his ball of tricks. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he'll do horrible things to people for great amounts of money, but I don't see him being run by someone who's a, a pedophile. I just don't see that. Well, as we later find out, Bill's actually a rather good dad. Yes. Yeah, I know. That's the surprise. Like, hey, he's a horrible human being otherwise, but goddamn good father. And this being yeah. recorded the day after Father's Day, I did have Bill as our Father's Day. <laughs> Salute to <laughs> all fathers. I had Bill. Oh, you did? Yeah, that's true. So Oren and Bride have a lot more in common than we really realize, and I don't think they even realize. Well, obviously the Bride knows because she's heard the story of Oren, but they both have been victims of sexual assault. They both have been the victims of sexual violence. And both women have gotten extraordinarily brutal revenge on those people. And anyone who is wondering why as we get when we get closer to the House of Blue Leaves and like there's these sequences with like these giant blood spurts and you're kinda like, well that's a lot of blood to be shooting out. It's one an homage to the movies, but the scene in which she kills the guy and pulls the sword out, the amount of blood that the anime has spraying out of the, like all of his body fluids came out at one time on that that spray. Like he's got more blood that shoots out from that wound in that anime sequence than I think is in the human body. I don't think you've got that much blood in you the way it just I mean it paints the wall behind her. It's just like yeah. her silhouettes on the wall. Yeah. An amazing, amazing scene. Anime. I mean, it just and then it just keeps moving, and you know, we kind of get to see who she is as a killer. I mean, so it's a great character development to let us know because now it's doing the same kind of thing. It's letting us know, like the whole foot massage dialogue in Pulp Fiction is letting us know about Marcellus. It's letting us know about Oren without ever really seeing her, and we now know that Oren is someone who shouldn't be fucked with either. Like she is definitely a deadly person. It's kind of yeah. letting us know, like, hey. You may remember that we already crossed off Oren. Well, you should be ready for the kind of fight that she's going to have to go through to kill Oren because it's not just going to be some easy third-grade child that she's going to have to walk through. She's going to have to really earn this number one kill. Yeah, and so also, you know, to show the kind of influences that are going through Tarantino's head when he's making this revenge movie, you know, in that anime sequence, you've got... Um, You've got spaghetti western music and black exploitation yes. playing side by side as well. So you're in this totally like crazy sort of world that can only really, really have come from him. No one else would have done that. So you've got, you know, you've got Asia, you've got anime, you've got spaghetti western, and you've got black exploitation all taking place in the same little, you know, six minute yeah. segment. That's just a crazy thing that you've never seen before and you probably never will again. Because no one has the mastery that he does. Well, there you go. This is why he's his, who he is. You know? Yeah, and this is why this movie, I think, put him into the lexicon of the greats of all time. Because in the 90s, he has, you know, obviously he's got a lot of crime films he's doing. I think all, a lot of them uh, were influenced by his mo- the, the crime movies of the 70s and his love of those. And I think maybe he took that six-year break to be like, you know what? 
I'm going to start really moving away from just that and show that I'm more than just a one-trick pony. I can do more than just your L.A. crime type stories, your yeah. you know, well, your, your think... gangster movies. I'm going to show you the love of films I have, and I'm going to show you how I'm going to take what I love about these great B movies, and I'm going to make them better and more accessible to yeah. the whole world yeah. than, than just yeah, you know, the, the fans. Well, I think he was probably feeling painted into a corner slightly of the kind of noir crime thing like you're talking about. And he's saying, hang on a minute. I grew up on a heavy diet of exploitation and martial arts movies and spaghetti westerns and, you know, all kinds of crazy shit. And I'm going to interject that into my movies because I'm not just a guy who makes movies about gangsters and the, under, the American underworld, you know. So this is what we get. You know, this is him firing on all, all exploitation cylinders. cylinders, you know. He's just fucking going for it, and he's cramming as much in. You know, and here's another thing. I will just quickly say this. People who say all he does is steal from other movies, yeah? It's like, well, how come no one's been able... If it's that easy, how come no one's been able to <laughs> steal... How come no one's been able to steal from him and make that successful? So that just goes to yeah. show what a bunch of bullshit that is when people say that. When people say that, it just makes me think, you don't know the fuck you're talking about. They don't, because what they reference is they'll reference that, oh, yeah, he took this shot from another film that did the same kind of shot. Okay, yeah, yeah m- maybe he did. However, it's not the same movie. He does it differently. He does it his own style. And in my opinion, it's more memorable. I'm just going to be honest. It's more memorable. The man knows how. Well, he wouldn't do it if it wasn't. Would... Yes, and he, know- he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he may he yeah. may like the framing he saw in another film, but how many times... He's not the only person who's done that. How about this? If you're a fan of Breaking Bad, which I'm a huge fan of Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad, you can go watch, and maybe this will be the spinoff podcast I do once this is done, once he does his last film, is go back and find how many, and you can you can find them on the internet, how many shots from Reservoir Dogs and his movies in Pulp Fiction, because they're huge fans, the guys who created Breaking Bad, of Tarantino stuff. There is so much of Tarantino world in there, which may be why I loved the end up loving the show so much without even knowing it. I was just, you know, kind of getting it refed to me. They pay homage to Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction in so many different shots. It's unbelievable. You can see them side by side. Difference being, obviously, there's the uh, Mr. White, Mr. Pink, you know, one on the floor, one standing up, and then I think Jesse Pinkman does it to Mr. White. The reverse of that, hello, the guy's last name is Pinkman, he's Mr. White. Like, there's so much that he that they took, but it's its own story. Like, it's it's a completely different story. They pay a little homage to it. It's got references. It's got shots that are familiar and, and similar, but they're different stories. They tell different stories, and they work. So when you're a true craftsman, you can take what you've seen someone else do, and you can make it better. That, what do you think chefs do? You think... All great food comes from one person? Come on. The stuff your parents make, someone else taught them how to make it, and maybe they make it better. Because we've all had dishes that have the same ingredients, but someone makes it better. Someone always makes it better than the other person. If you've ever had one of those like chili cook-offs kind of things, or whatever they have over in... Or right. fish and chips bullshit. I'm just kidding. Um, Whoa. As I just totally shit on my English fan. No, I'm just totally messing with you. But, you know, you it, there's a certain dish that people make, and a lot of people try it, and there's always one person or a dessert that makes it better. They just know how to put the ingredients together better, and that's exactly what Tarantino does for all you haters, which I'm, I'm surprised if there's a lot of haters on this podcast. I, yeah, what are you doing hey, listening to this? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, because they want anyway, to be part of the club. Moving yeah. swift, moving swiftly along. Anyways, we're gonna jump to chapter four because what you're kind of talking about plays into this. The man from Okinawa in this film. Those of you who are true Tarantino fans, those of you who are Gen Xers who grew up with this, all right. 
True romance. You're sitting in the theater. The first thing that happens after he talks about Elvis is he goes to see how many kung fu movies? Three. Who stars in these kung fu movies called Street Fighter, Street Fighter 2, and Sister Street Fighter? Who's the star? Sonny Chiba. Sonny fucking Chiba. Who's the man from Okinawa? Who's Hattori Hanzo? Sonny fucking Chiba. The man. In Pulp Fiction. They're sitting at a diner. Jules has had a moment of God touching him. And he says he's going to walk the earth. Like who? Kane. Kane. From what show? Kung Fu. Kung who played Fu. Kane? David Carradine. There you go. In Reservoir Dogs, they're talking about Pam Greer. Who shows up in Jackie Brown as the lead? Pam Greer. So all these people that he has talked about, suddenly they're in front of us. They're alive. These actors that he has already had other people reference are now sitting on screen in front of us. And the great Hattori Hanzo character, played by the late, great Sonny Chiba, we get him. And what an amazing moment. This unassuming elder Japanese man who makes sushi and apparently okinawa is known for having the worst sushi in the islands of japan so him having bad sushi was intentional that he just lives in okinawa and we get this little blonde-haired american girl bubbly girl walking in in the bride playing all cutesy and all flirty and what a great setup what an amazing setup for this whole entire scene i was just gonna say because in kill bill 2 Bill says to Beatrix about, does he still make that terrible sushi? Yeah, has the sushi gotten any better? (laughs) Yeah, that's it, yeah. Well, it just reminded me of that as as you mentioned it. But it's great. He hears this master swordsman, this master sword maker, master swordsman, Basically, uh, uh, keeping the lineage of the samurai culture alive, he, he's just hidden. He's like Superman. It's funny. He's like Superman. He is Hattori Hanzo. Every day he wakes up as Hattori Hanzo, like this little thing that Bill says in Volume 2. Every day he pretends to be a sushi chef, when in reality, he's Hattori motherfucking Hanzo. Yeah. The man, the myth, the legend. Yeah. When she finally says, I'm looking for someone. Who would you pay looking for? And she says, Hattori Hanzo. And you hear the glass break. From, yeah, out, out from the, the bald guy in the back. And you see him yeah. just pause and he turns around. Why are you looking for Hattori Hanzo? Because I need Japanese steel. Japanese it leads steel. to one of my favorite emotional scenes. And people are going to think this is crazy. When you I'm, talk glad about you, music, I'm, I'm glad you just said that. Carry on. When we go up into the above Attic loft, above or, yeah. the restaurant, and they've got that music playing, and she is in awe walking in front of, and obviously she has heard the lore of Hattori Hanzo from Bill before and knows all about it. And there she is walking in front of the swords that he has made. And she almost wants to go grab one. And then she's like, doesn't even think about it. She turns around. She goes, may I? And he goes, yes. And then she goes, great. He goes, no, not that one. Try this one. And just the music. And then the way she grabs it, like, it gives me chills not talking about it. It's just, ah, it's so beautifully shot. So the music is perfect. Her it's reverence very, is amazing. It's very, yeah, exactly. It's very sincere. It's actually very touching. Like you say, with that music and, and the way she, she reaches for the sword but hesitates and looks at him and he's like, try the second one down. And when she's got that laying in her arms, she just feels that whatever it is, that kind of... So I'm a huge samurai fan. I think one of the reasons I am is because of my love for Star Wars and seeing Star Wars as a young kid and wanting to be a Jedi. So when she's walking with those swords, I can I could only imagine if like I walked and there were real lightsabers and like there they are in front of you and you just kind of walk up to them and you're just in awe. You've heard about these mythical things forever and then they're right in front of you and you're almost too afraid to touch them. You're almost... You know the power with which they have. And, yes, you know, The reverence with which you need to have, you know, not just some... Slack John motherfucker just walks in off the street and says, hey, look at these swords. Woo, woo, woo. 
you think you're a pirate, but and I always love the way the sound just when she unfinally she said that sound like that metal that long like, hold up. Like yeah. A, yeah. yeah. Hard to describe that word. It's, it's like, like a, a metal ting. It's like it's almost like, like a, a tinnitus. Hum. Yeah. But it's just yeah, like a hum. And then yeah, come, oh. Yeah. Such a beautiful just, sound. But like you said, you know, that that is the one moment in the film where there's some like genuine emotion. There is like a strange. Yes, she she's overtaken. She's overcome with. It's like she's like the one of a better term. She's starstruck. Yes, exactly. Yeah, she yeah. is yeah, absolutely yeah. starstruck by them, not by the man and by his reputation. It would be how it would be if I got to met Tarantino for the first time. You know, if yeah. he was like, "Hey, you want to come by my house?" I I don't know. I'd be like, probably wouldn't be able to talk. I'd just be standing there, just like almost in awe. Yeah. Like, what you you want to do? What? So yeah. Yeah, but so I, just, that, that, I love it. It's such a tender and sweet moment. Very, yeah, it. very powerful sequence, basically. That whole part. So you like to play with samurai swords. I, I like, like baseball. baseball. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask you, you probably know this, but maybe you did your research. But in case you don't, I'm going to say this and ask you so that our listeners can know. Did you know they actually cut that baseball in half in that shot? No. Zoe Bell, as her stunt double, actually cut the baseball. So that just tells you how sharp that sword was. And it gives you a little more reverence for how cool Zoe Bell fucking is to Absolutely. cut a baseball in half with a samurai sword. Absolutely. And now I, now I want that sword because that is cool shit. Wow. So now you know just how sharp. Yeah, well, I did not, I did not know that. Did. Now you do. And as I said in the old G.I. Joe, knowing is half the battle. Yo, Joe. I don't know if you're a fan of other... MCU stuff, my favorite Marvel stuff is the X-Men. My favorite is Wolverine. To me, he is the piece de resistance as far as superheroes go. He has adamantium claws. So my question for you, and it was originally the reason I'm asking this question is because I was going to ask my first guest, who is a big geek about comic books. I don't know how big a fan you are of the X-Men or even Wolverine, but you should know the, the term of adamantium. Adamantium being supposedly the sharpest and strongest metal ever. Do we think a Tori Hanzo's sword is as sharp or sharper than adamantium? I'm going to say yes. I agree. I feel like they got to be on the same level. I feel yeah, like it's maybe no. the only thing that can. It's at least equal. Let's put it that way. Yes, agreed. At least equal, for sure. We'll, yeah, we'll go that. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, sit on, we'll sit on the fence on that one. That whole sequence, The Man from Okinawa, is fantastic. This is very powerful, very touched. Well, the sword reveal at the end, when he finally makes the sword for her, and he's sitting there in the white robes, and he's presenting the sword to her in that whole speech, which we talked about, where he has broken his, his vow. His, his vow. And, that, you know, and with yeah. no ego, he says, this is the greatest sword he has ever made. So great that if on your journey you should come across, counter God, God will be cut. When it's said with such reverence the way he says it, not with, you know, like he said, with no ego. Not, he's not like trying to be a badass, but like just saying like, you know, I have broken an oath that said I would never do again. But if I'm going to do it, I'm going to make the greatest sword ever made by a man. And sure enough, he has. And, and you believe it. And they're so well lit. That scene is so well lit as well. It's just got a magical... Mm. But that's exactly what he's trying to get across, isn't it? Yes. You're in, you're in the Tarantino. Yes. You're in the fantasy land. This yes. He's given it just as much power and visual. He has seen this kind of thing in other samurai films before, but he is giving it the justice that maybe those filmmakers didn't... Or, and the ability that those filmmakers didn't have. He is giving it the reverence that it deserves with a man who is... Uh, who he obviously loves in his movies. Yeah. Now, 
I don't know if I, I'm going to say that these probably commercials didn't make it across the pond. But in the late 80s, maybe early 90s, I think it was, we have a lot of these commercials selling like um, songs of the 60s on tape, like all these little things. Now, there was a guy over here who was worldwide. Do you remember the name Zamfir, Master of the Pan Flute? No. They would sell over here these like Time Life audio recordings of Zamfir's greatest hits, whatever. Zamfir's song, this guy, this pan flute guy, is in this part. He's the that little. Is that the line? The Lonely Shepherd, is it called? Yes, he's the yes. Lonely Shepherd. It's phenomenal. But if you look up Zamfir, you would never expect his music to be in this That's fucking another movie. Another one just goes to show how clever he is, yeah. But, yeah, but yeah. it also goes to show that he probably heard that fucking flute thing they were selling over in the 80s and 90s and remembered it and was like, you know, that guy has a sound I might want to put in. I'm sure I saw an interview with him where he said, or had an interview with Tarantino where he said he heard it in a restaurant. You know what? It probably would very well I'm have been sure, played I'm as sure a background that's what song. I yeah. heard. He's heard it in the background in a restaurant. He was like, what's this piece of music? And that's why I used it in Kill Bill. That's what I remember. Anyway, but yeah, what a great scene. What yeah. a great part of the film. That's the main. That's the only part of the film that's got that dreamlike quality to it. Yes, and I almost forgot, but this is also it builds more towards Bill's mythology and reputation because yeah. she says, considering the vermin, you're yeah, kind of responsible you... for all he gets, and he just walks over and writes the name without saying it, and they continue to build who this guy is. Yeah, and then what does the bride do? Rubs him out. She does rub well. She, sorry, folks. She rubs the name out. She does not go and rub out Hattori Hanzo. You sick bastard! How dare you insinuate? She's I'm sorry. Yeah, you, you, I'm sorry. You haven't you haven't seen the whole bloody affair. <laughs> that's payment for the sword. Oh yeah. man, that's definitely not something we so want she, to see. So the, I just I, I just remember when she rubs the name out. I was like, yeah, that's kind of there's a oh yeah. There's oh, yeah, that's intentional. Of, yeah. There's some symbolism going on yep. there, you know. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, fantastic sort of moment. That leads to her flying from Okinawa with the sword to Japan. Let's talk about Japanese airlines real quick. That's security, man. Uh, is everyone... So here's the thing. I couldn't decide. Does everyone... Every time I see this movie, I go, does everyone have a samurai sword? Or are they using them as, like, armrests? Like, is that, like, kind of the thing? Like, they have, like, the samurai sword thing built into the armrest, like, you know, like, the cup holder thing? Like, so each aisle has one. Like, and this is after 2001. Just feels like Japanese airways in this movie are really loose when it comes to security and what weapons <laughs> well, can and can't come on a plane. I, I, no, you can carry a samurai sword on the plane. Uh, you don't even need to check it in baggage. No, you can carry a samurai sword on the plane if you're in business class. Gotcha. There we go. This it's samurai class. That's a different yeah, class. Yeah, well, that's that's yeah, a, that's, samurai that's, class a, up there. that's yakuza. That's yakuza class. So that is your uh, briefcase practice. And this is the biggest chunk of the movie, too, this last chapter. It takes up, a, Jesus, almost an, it feels like almost an hour. It's about 45 minutes or so. So it's the biggest chapter in the film. Well, yeah, no, it is literally 45, you just said it, it's literally 40, 45 minutes of the film. The okay. last. I, I, thought, I thought it was released. somewhere in that point, yep. Yeah, yeah, no, it is, yeah, absolutely. So it's, the interesting thing is we jump back to find out where Oren has been lately and that we find out she's just taken over the Yakuza. And some people aren't too happy about that. What the fuck did Tanaka think was going to happen when Oren jumped up on the table and ran down to his end? Why he just like sat there and took it? Like he didn't get up to defend himself. Nothing. He just sat there, pissed off with his hand being bloody and got his fucking head chopped off. What was well, going? Th- he just thinks she's just some stupid little girl. Yes. You know. Yes. I don't think he knows how deadly she truly is. Well, no. 
let's think of you know let's say uh japanese culture you know um no you're right no you're right there, there's a lot of cultures where very much you know a very much yeah. culture yep a lot of yeah and he there. probably thinks what's this stupid little girl gonna do <laughs> and he, then she's also part chinese part american so right off that he doesn't even doesn't even give so a time exactly. because she's not even a, a full blood so to speak exactly. not full-blooded japanese so he's just thinking this stupid little girl thinks she's just gonna come in here and take over she won't stand a fucking chance. <laughs> Little does he know, he's about to... <laughs> to lose his head over it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> quite, liter- quite literally. Well, she goes back to English to explain the, the tough parts. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he meets a rather sticky end as well. Yeah. So, things don't work out for that guy. No. And so, again, Tarantino being the consummate homager that he is, and person who pays respects to the films that came before him that he fell in love with, did you know the set, the miniature, we get miniatures in this, yeah. the miniature of Tokyo that the plane flies over that from as, the uh, as she's arriving. The name of the Godzilla movie at that time, I it was very long. So it was a recent Godzilla movie that had just been filmed, and they had this leftover part of the set, and they used it. And I, I absolutely love it. You know it's a miniature when it happens, but it's just so beautiful. I love the fact that he used that as well. Like, he really dips his toes into so many different genres and different things that we hadn't seen before from him. And that being another instance of that. That whole part when the plane's coming into land, you know, she's, um, I think that's when we see her on the mo- motorbike. Yes, then then she's in the kiss of death, or the kiss of death, the uh, game, game of, of death, death outfit with the helmet on the motorcycle. With the bike. And we get the flight of the bumblebee playing. As she's riding, and she catches up to your wife, Sophie Fatale, who's on the phone. Showing her sexy toes. And then she speeds off through the tunnel, and we get one of my favorite sequences in all of film. One of the coolest walk-up intros ever. When we get Oren and her posse entering the house of Blue Leaves. Yes, we do. I absolutely love that song. I absolutely love the Battle of Honor and... Battles of Honor and Battles of... Battles of the Honor and Humanity. Honor and Humanity. Yes. It. I absolutely love that song. And that is... I mean, that has been used so much. That is so iconic now. Obviously, it came from... I think he said it was on a Japanese TV show he saw it, or another Japanese movie, and he wanted to use that piece of music. That is the name of a Japanese series of films that were remade. So I think they were made in the late 60s, mid-70s, and I think they remade them in the 80s. So I guess they're the 80s versions by the sound of the music. Yeah, don't quote me on that. I'm sure it's something like that. It may be one of the most famous pieces of music that he's ever used yeah. and made famous. Like, he really made that famous. It no, was absolutely. just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And that's such a cool fucking walk-up. I mean, it's so cool to introduce her. I mean, like I keep saying, he knows how to introduce characters. He knows how to introduce villains. Absolutely. No, you got that right. You got that right. Yeah, great. Great now, in this movie, we also get a signature long take. One of the first ones he's done, and that is when Oren has Jedi fucking suddenly abilities, and she senses a disturbance in the Force outside, and she throws that little dagger, and then sends yeah. Gogo out to find her, whoever it is, and the you know, bride, got the bride up the hanging up in the, the rafters. Well, yeah. she finally lowers herself down, and then she walks down to the bathroom. That's that long take. It took them six hours to block that scene. Six like that. Hours to block that scene. Well, I bet it did. Yeah, and I think it took him seventeen takes, and I, I guess the 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 camera operators were like literally in pain after because it was just how long of a scene it is. You know, I mean, it's a, it's an awesome scene, but yeah. then she walked by the six seven eight, and they're playing the woohoo, woo-hoo, woo-hoo, 
That, again, another song that became very famous and was used over here in America for like Honda commercials or, or some kind of commercial. We've heard, you know, it's been used quite a few times over here as far as, you know, in our advertising. But I got to say, your smash pick, Gogo is so hot. Like she is, okay. she's as hot as she is deadly. You know, like she, she really is. But the other weird juxtaposition of them walking in is the 88, the crazy 88. They look like some kind of weird K-pop band, don't they? A little bit just the way they're... Well, in they retrospect, got the Kato, yeah. Like the that. Kato mask and stuff like that. They have this really weird vibe going for them when they come walking with her. And then they're like talking about getting pepperoni pizzas and someone's dick getting big in Japanese, which we never get that in, in subtitles. We, uh. We're left out of that whole... Whatever it was, it's like it's kept like as an inside joke for the Japanese audience that we will never be a part of unless you know Japanese. And Tarantino films don't have subtitles that you can add either. Do you know that on Blu-ray? Okay, I'm sure you know. After all this starts, and unfortunately, your your poor girlfriend, your poor soon-to-be wife, she made the mistake of going to the bathroom to answer a phone call or powder her nose or as we learn a lot of times in Tarantino films using the bathroom can usually lead to someone's detriment in the movie she comes out of the bathroom and loses an arm mm. an arm oh in quite spectacular fashion spectacular well. fashion spectacular fashion and i love how they she just continues to swing around to get that blood effect going more and more i mean you could, like there's no reason for her to spin but it actually hits the, it actually hits the, the camera as well. Yeah, it's so, yeah, so it's good. Amazing. Well, this leads us to the greatest fight, one of the greatest moments. Tarantino decided that he was going to do an action movie, and we get nothing but fucking action. Possibly, yeah, possibly one of the best action sequences ever. Film. Yeah, because because it's such a long action sequence from the moment she cuts off her arm until she finally gets to the end with Oren. It's uh, God, it feels like 20, 30 minutes. Like it's a long, long go. It took them six weeks to shoot the scene. It's a long time. The visual gags and ideas that spring out of that oh. twenty-five minutes is pretty amazing. Oh, really. it's unbelievable. Even unbelievable. if you'd have, even if you would have filmed. 50 action scenes before that in other films. That would still be amazing. So for that to be your sort of first foray into that is fucking gobsmacking. He's got her in the Bruce Lee Game of Death outfit intentionally. If you, I don't know if you noticed, but the bottom of her shoe that she wears when she walks across the glass, and it always slips by. It says, Every fuck single you. sensor, it says, fuck you, because you can't read it straight. It says, fuck yeah. you. Bruce Lee is always seen in his movies where it's him against, like, 9 to 20 guys, and then he's whooping their ass, whether it's with his nunchucks or his feet. And it says, like, he's always whooping ass. So Tarantino obviously l- went with that. The, always the hero of the kung fu film is always suddenly surrounded by, like, 97 people, and he's got to go through them to get to, like, the boss. And yeah. I love how it starts slow though, because you know we get the <laughs> we get the K-pop band to come down, and she dispatches of them very very fast, very yeah. quickly, and then we get Go Go. We do, and I love it. So it sets us up with like, oh, we're gonna fight a few henchmen. Then we're gonna get boss level right before the boss levels. Like the second to last boss is Go Go Yabari, and yeah, her weapon to me that's that's one of my favorite weapons is is her weapon. It is just that's a great oh it's no no dice it's just brutal. And then yeah. the mono and, and, mono and, and, fight we get. Yeah. And the bride is in trouble. Yes. You know. The bride is in trouble. Again, like all great 
action films with heroes. You put the hero in just the amount of peril that they're, oh, they're about to, and then something fortuitous has happened where, oh, we see this moment and puts the table leg into her head and a great shot. At first, we just hear it, hear the whack, yeah. and then we get to look at Gogo, and then the blood comes out of her eyes, and then we get the shot of the chain falling out of her hand and loosening, and then she falls over. It's well done. And yeah. then we're all like, all right, let's go, all right. Now she's going to fight, all right. And then we got the old... Silly rabbit, tricks of her kids. The great sound of, of the motorbikes just come, and you're like, holy shit, it's a lot of people. And then, as you said, Gordon Liu, his character, Johnny Moe, he Mo. comes in, and he's like, yeah, and they Screaming. come from everywhere. They just come piling in, and you're like, it's almost like Tarantino said, I've seen these Bruce Lee kung fu films. I love the fact that you've got 20 guys. I think it's cute. How's 60 to 70 feel? <laughs> and he's, I mean, say what you will. If, if you're not a fan of Tarantino or you think he's this or that, the man pushed himself in this film. He has never done action sequences until this point. And does he go in and work it in easily? No. He decides to do this one-on-three million fight that takes six weeks to shoot that is all done with swords. There's no gunplay. There's no, like, easy kills. It's everyone is going to get cut down by a sword. And how do we make it happen? We throw in breakdancing moves. And we've got song changes. And the color goes black and white because the censors don't want the blood. Fucking God damn it. What a bunch of pussies over here in America. Every every kid should have a gun. Uh, every well, kid should have a gun. That, Everyone, but, but we can't show blood on TV. Like, what? what is going on? So anyways, we have to do that for the censors. Yeah, wow. But we get this amazing fight of her. And I love the little beats of it starts out good. And then all of a sudden, you know, she put, like we said earlier, she puts the sword in one of the guys. She's spinning him around. And there's these moments for her to catch her breath and kind of reassess how she's going to finish this fight. It's amazing that she's even able to, one, defeat all of them, but then have any energy to then go out and fight fucking Oren Ishii. Like, Oren stacked the deck heavily in her favor to really take out, you know, to take the bride down a peg or two before she even got there. Do you think when Oren walked out, do you think that she thought that she was going to have to fight the bride? Do you think she set her minions to the slaughter? Do you think that it was she always knew it was going to be her and the bride at the end? That she just was like, well? No, I don't think she did. And I say that because she doesn't know that the bride got Hanzo sword. No, she doesn't because she asks the st- steal. And then she says, oh, you lie. And then she spins it and shows the, the emblem to her when she's out in the... Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, she's fucked. She got no chance. Did you know that there are over 450 gallons of fake blood used for Kill Bill? <laughs> I didn't. No, I did not know that. But that just, yeah. I mean, that whole sequence with, I love the um, the moment where someone flicks the lights out and yeah, it goes to the blue. Yeah. Blue That's and really black. Cool. And I must say, another, another thing about that whole massacre <laughs> sequence is the change between being the bride and being Zoe Bell. You can't tell. No. Very well, well photographed. Great job by both yeah, actresses. You, Amazing. Amazing work. Because it's Zoe Bell running up the banister, and then they have her turn her back to us to do the, the sword cut of the person coming across. They keep the magic hidden, which but it's just, they, just beautiful. When that's just chaos all around, to be able to pull that off is yeah. fantastic in, its, in itself. So, so, yeah, that is, to me, one probably one of the best action sequences of all time. And that's including John Woo, Sam yeah. Peckinpah, Bruce Lee, fucking you name it. You know, it's just an amazing, yeah, it's fantastic. I love it. I love it. How did Johnny Moe die from getting his legs cut off and falling into a pool? Well, he like, drowned. Well, I think he's fucking, well, the fact that his legs cut off is probably bad enough. 
So he's, he, he bleeds to death. But it feels, he like he, it feels like his legs are cut off, and he falls in, and he lands in the water, and he's dead. Again, I you know this happens a lot in kung fu films. I get that. I know it's probably an homage. But it just felt like here's like the third. Well, he's probably not as badass as Gogo. But he's like the next. Like he's the gatekeeper to get to Oren at this point. And he just gets his legs taken off. And down he goes. So I don't I know think, that Johnny Mo would last long against Pai Mei if it's that easy for him to go down. Well, I don't know. I think if someone gets their legs cut off, falls 30 feet, you know, chances are they're going to drown. I don't think that's that much of a mirror. You know, that's that much of a surprise. <laughs> I think you're being a bit harsh on old Johnny Moe. Uh, I, I, look, at, I'm just I'm bringing it to light. I think Johnny Moe's a bit of a pussy. I'm just saying, I think Johnny Moe, uh, we, we were well, led to believe he was such a badass. He's a, we, we well, were led really. to believe I mean, that he was a badass, it. and he uh, he didn't really shine. I'm just saying, he didn't shine in his moment. That's all I'm saying. Well, he lasted long enough, but then he did his I guess fucking he did. legs cut. But anyway, let's, let's, let's move along. <laughs> now, when we finally do get the Bride vs. Oren, it is easily one of the most beautiful fight scenes ever filmed. It's so beautiful. It is an homage to Lady... Yeah, it is. Okay, so it's a home homage to Lady Snowblood. It is a yep. beautifully shot scene. It's not the best fight, is it? No, no, no. I didn't say the best fight. I said the, the no, most no, no. beautiful scene. No, no, no. I know you didn't. Scene. I know. No. No, I know you didn't. That's, I, I'm just... I, I just always think that when I watch it. I think this after what we've just seen, you know. <laughs> she just fucking killed, like, like sad 60-odd people. Well, in fairness for the two of them, Oren is not exactly dressed to be sword fighting. Con- just considering the- her kimono and the way she's dressed. Like, she's not exactly in the kind of gear you would want to be in a sword fight. No. Also, the bride has just gone through hell. Like, she is badly injured. Literally, yeah. And also... Yeah. So, it makes me think that at the end of the... When she... This must take a month or two before she's able to fly back to America and fight with Vernita. Because she needs some time to heal from this brutal onslaught yeah. that she just took on. Yeah, and, um, and that fantastic... Um, version of um don't let me be misunderstood the spanish version which like you say it's just a combination is it Mm -hmm. of like of the music the way the bride now looks with the yellow and red Mm -hmm. you've got oren looking like a just a beautiful porcelain doll porcelain doll so the so the and the snow coming down the snow it's it's, it's everything about it everything about it's amazing it's an incredible scene. Now, I put this up a couple months back. I even put this video up. But when Oren says, you won't last five minutes, it is exactly four minutes and 59 seconds from the time she steps forward out of her shoes to the top of her head is sliced off. Well, that can't be an accident because no. that seems oh, like such absolutely a... Well, no, not an accident. No, because it just seems like such an odd thing to say. Yes. But think about two things. Tarantino... Thinking about what, how long he had to film certain things for that to happen that way. And then him and Sally sitting in the editing room, making sure that it's crafted so that it lasts just shy of five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. No, you got that right. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that's a, and I do love the whole charge, the clashing swords, and then the next thing, you know, one gets injured. But yet, they have respect for each other. So instead of, you know, I mean, easily Oren could have just gone over and finished off the bride while she's laying there. But that's not what she wanted. She almost she no. wanted to, she wanted the satisfaction of killing her because, you know, she makes fun of silly Caucasian girl likes to play with samurai swords. And so she thought she was better. It's a very sort of, well, the whole sequence is, like we said, but after what we've just seen action-wise, this is just like a very poetic sort of visually rich moment that is paying homage to like you say lady snow blah yeah which is a great film too yeah actually yes well there's, there's actually quite a few little nods to lady snow blah and kill bill as we know 
musically as well. Yep. Plays the theme in it too. So before we end this, there are five fight scenes in this film. Which is your favorite? The Bride versus Renita, The Bride versus Gogo, The Bride versus The Crazy 88, The Bride versus Oren, or Beatrix versus L. Which of these fight sequences is your favorite? It's The Crazy 88. The whole scene against The Crazy 88. Good choice, yeah. To me, me, it's a difficult choice, obviously. The Sophie's Choice situation, but The Crazy 88 sequence is just... Because you've also got to think back to when you first saw it. You know, when I watched The Matrix and all that, and I thought that was... Bullshit. I didn't think that was convincing. <laughs> I didn't even find it particularly convincing, to be fair. You know, we're all good and well on them learning the choreography, but they didn't really sell it to me. I didn't feel like <laughs> there was any power to any of that fighting. Where in Kill Bill, I just remember watching that at the cinema and that just absolutely blew my mind. And whenever I watched, you know, whenever I watch Kill Bill, I'm constantly wowed still that he pulled that off. So, yes, for me, it is the uh, crazy 88 fight. What about you? For me, I believe it is. I think it's her and Gogo. I think her and Gogo is the closest I actually felt that she was outmatched. Yeah, no, that's yeah. valid. That's yeah, a good cause, point. Because Gogo got her sword away from her and her she weapon. She does get was... the better. She does get the better yeah. of her for a bit of yeah. that. No, that's a good point actually. Yeah. So there's, great, some, and, yeah. so there's an element of danger to that. There yeah. is an element of like, oh dear, it's going to yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas the crazy AI, you know, she's just everyone's getting their asses handed to her. So, yeah, good point. Now, the end of this film ends with Bill interrogating Sophie. I have no problem with that. I did recheck. We talked about it. I think we talked about it in, 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 in the future study. episode. Yep, she does have just one arm taken up, but you no. are correct. They're in the movie, in the other, in the, what's it called? There is two, I guess to take it off, uh, there's another uh, scene for the whole bloody affair where both arms are removed. Yes. Oh, um, so. But in this one, there's only one. No, in this route, there is only and one I checked. Too. What I don't like about this, because it had to be split, I do not like the big reveal cliffhanger because I remember reading the screenplay, I remember vividly being like, oh shit, her daughter is still alive when she finds out, because we are the bride throughout the entire movie. We find out things when she finds out things. And when she came around the corner at Bill's house at the end of line two, and there is her daughter, Bibi, you had no clue it was coming. They had to obviously, I had this part in when they split the movie, so there's a cliffhanger. I still wish they had left that part out. I wish it had just ended with him interrogating her and her telling her what, you know, and so they will soon all be as dead as Oren. And then I wish they just, they do that cut, and then they have that little, we have Hattori Hanzo, and she's making the death list, and we finally see that. And he's talking about, you know, don't get lost while you're on your thing of revenge. And it could have just cut from there and gone to the next movie I could have done without. Does she know that her daughter's alive? Like, I did not like that. I still don't like it. It bothers me every time I see it. I remember how I felt when I read it in the original screenplay and how much I was like, oh, shit, no way. And okay, doesn't have I the same that. power when you see the daughter. You know, I know, I, I, you know, you know, you might forget about it. And eventually she's, you know, she doesn't come from like another two hours. But at the same time, that sudden like, oh, shit, like reveal. Because, you know, the whole time we're like, oh, man, you know, we're in with a kill. And then all of a sudden, like, we, we should feel like she is like, oh, shit, like now what? I don't know. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah. How do you feel? I get that, but I would counter that with, when I saw it, but right, firstly, I saw the script online before I saw the film. I didn't read it, though, because I didn't want the film spoiled for me. So I read about a page and thought, hang on a minute, I'm going to go see this movie. I don't want to know. Well, I was going to Iraq, so I, I, I cheated. I'm not going to lie. Well, no, cheated. no. I mean, I'm sure many, many people read the script the first chance they got. But I, I just thought, no, I don't want it ruined for me. So that, that's not an issue for me, is all I'm really saying. 
And I did gotcha. kind of like the fact, and I did kind of like the fact that you don't get cliffhangers in movies. True. I mean, I see what you're saying, but it is cool that reveal. Yeah. So it's kind of like, I was kind of like, wow, that's not something you get very often. Because I hadn't even thought that far because I was so probably wowed by what I was seeing unfold on the screen. But when it came to the does she know her daughter's still alive, I was like, whoa, you know, fuck. I hadn't even considered that. But I see what you're saying about how much of an impact and much more of an impact it would have had in Volume 2. I get that. Yeah. If you didn't know all the way along that she was still alive. So I can kind of see both sides of it is what I'm saying. But for me personally, I kind of dug that the movie ended with a cliffhanger because that was just something you didn't get very often. Even when there were films, there were films that had sequels already greenlit before Kill Bill 1 and 2, obviously. Yeah. But you didn't always get that kind of gut punch cliffhanger. So that was kind of cool. So, yeah, I see both sides. I definitely see what you're saying. So if you'd have gone through, you know, ultimately nearly four and a half hours and then you get hit <laughs> with, and then you get hit with that little nugget of in yeah. so like, that would have blown your mind i get that too so yeah that's one of those things just different scenarios that we came to the film with really. and that's the end of volume one so we must say goodbye to mr smith for now as he will rejoin us again to answer some parting questions about this film at the end but stay tuned because when we come back we will continue our roaring rampage of revenge with volume two are you easily offended those people having an opinion opposite of yours absolutely make your ass hurt when people shit on your favorite pop culture brands, does it make you want to go postal? Do you feel the need to throw a fucking temper tantrum whenever people don't like the same things that you do? If you answered yes to any or all of these questions, then the Cheeky Bastards podcast is most definitely not for you. So we highly suggest you grow the fuck up and go fuck yourself. On September 6, 2022, if you're not some pearl-clutching candy ass who needs to speak to a manager every time someone has a different opinion than yours, or if you're not some limp-dick movie bro who gets queasy at the idea of somebody taking a shit on the films they also fucking did, then this just might be the podcast for you. So go grab a box of fucking tissues, grow a set of fucking nuts, and join us this fall for some hot takes that are guaranteed to chafe some fucking asses. And now the gospel, according to the almighty... Tarantino, Chapter 7, Volume 2, Kill Bill, Volume 2. And now it's time to jump bloodily and gloriously into Volume 2. And as you know, they each start with a prelude. Right. I am not a fan of this because it's split okay. into two at the beginning of this. Because what ends up happening is this is a scene that was added in. So where she's driving, which is lovely rear screen oh. projection in black and white where she talks about, you know, roaring rampage and all this stuff, which is great. And she says, I'm on my way to kill the last one, which is great because it does set us up to think that, oh, she kills everyone in this section that she's going to get up to. Well, we'll all get into that. Because it was thrown in an extra, for me, I don't know. Like I said, when I think of it as one movie... And I talked about it in the first one. There is no cliffhanger when you get the whole bloody affair. There's no cliffhanger at all. You don't know Uma's or the bride's child survives until the 10th chapter when you show up and you think she's going to kill Bill. And all of a sudden she makes the corner and there's her daughter standing right. in front of her. And yeah. I love that. I love that. Holy shit. I love to think that we think the whole movie she's on revenge, revenge, revenge. But right. when, like you said, Weinstein wanted this to be, well, he wanted Tarantino to cut a bunch. And how they made the concession was is Tarantino said, what if I make it into two volumes? That way I can tell my stories the way I want them to be. And so in order to 
do that, though, he threw in the the cliffhanger and then the prelude in this one to lead us in. I don't like it. Again, it's good if other people do. To me, it's the one cheesy part. Like I said in the in the last episode, I get you know the whole thing of Bill talking to her is great, but then when he says, "But does she know her daughter's still alive?" I know they had to add it in, but for me as a fan, I I would have much rather even come into this not even knowing she was still alive. Like I would have preferred the end of that one to just lose that, and I would we could we don't need we don't need the hey if the last time you saw this movie like if you came into volume two without seeing volume one oh, yeah. then it's then it's your fucking fault if you don't know what's happening you're just a fucking idiot like who who goes to i mean i guess you could go like not to we're not some, taking a shit well, on ramble film, but you can um, see ramble two without ramble one yes, and still can. have a good idea what the story is because it's a, its own story but this it happens immediately after so if you come into this one you're missing well i think that's why it's called volume Agreed. one and two i it's not part one and two because Look at the Lord of the Rings, for example, the, that trilogy. It's three "quote unquote" films, but we all know it's one story. So this is where again I agree. Agree, agree with you know Quentin Tarantino, who made the freaking film, and Craig. I know he's listening. That yeah, this is one film or it's one story. This is a story. Period. That had to get broken up in two parts. Same with Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite trilogies. Of course, I love that mo- those movies. It's actually one story in three films. Agreed. So it's yeah. not part one and two. It's not yeah. like they made part one. It's like, oh, I hope this does well and we'll do a sequel. Those are the Ramble films. Those <laughs> yeah. are even the Rocky yes. films, so to speak. Like, we get it. Those are lethal weapons. Like, there's never really a, an overall story when they made the first lethal weapon. But, they, you know, hey, it made, made money. Let's see more adventures. That's fun. That's fine. But, no, Kill Bill was always intended to be this whole story. Yeah, absolutely. How did you feel about the the, the prelude? Do you, do you like it? Or it, well, it, just, you know, it doesn't bother you either way? You're just kind of like, no, hey, no, it's good. You know what's funny? No, it's not. You're right. It's actually not very strong. It's Uma Thurman's amazing in this film and i agree with you actually i didn't realize it was kind of an afterthought type uh it almost feels that way now that you're saying that i can see that it's funny watching again just yesterday for the first time it's been a few years so when she did that you know i will get my revenge on the stuff it, it was cheesy but i thought well maybe it's supposed to seem cheesy i think you're right i think he's definitely leaning into still you know we're, after this film we go to death proof and he does do a lot of the homages for those right. kind of movies so this does feel like the beginning of that but it wasn't uma's best acting it it, it did Agreed. it wasn't very convincing uh she's more convincing when she sees her daughter and that sequence i mean i don't know if you want to talk about it right now but just the way she acts in that sequence when she sees her daughter she plays dead but that look on her face of like holy crap that's my girl and the way her face changes she's just near tears but she doesn't want to scare her daughter like all oh, those things happen at once it's just uma's amazing in this film in these two films i, I ugh, it bugs me she didn't get an oscar i'm sorry like her physical acting agreed and we talk about that on a rambo podcast all the time of Stallone's physical acting in First Blood, that's that's acting. Like, you can't just be there. You have to... It's not about just dialogue, which Quentin is amazing at, but what also Quentin's amazing at is getting his actors to emote the way they look, and Uma just kills in these films. Agreed. And speaking of being killed, we're going to jump to Chapter 6, okay. Massacre at Two Pines. So mm-hmm. I do like how, <laughs> and with the little voiceovers, everyone thought that, the, you know, there was a murder during a wedding, but it was actually the, it was like the wedding rehearsal. It's such... Yeah, that, that, yeah. I love that part of the voiceover. Yeah. One of my favorite parts about this, and again, I'm going to cherry pick things out, and if you have some stuff, throw it in. Sure. I just like to go through and just kind of find things that I find are funny, because again, like you said, this movie's coming up on 20 years, or actually, yeah, this is, we just did 18, so this just hit 18 years, so it's, I mean, it's a 
old enough to vote. It's been out a long time, so it's got. It's old, it's old enough yeah. to smash. It's, it's old enough to smash. It's old enough to smash number one. They're both in the same age range now. I love that Rufus, played by the great Samuel Jackson, who there is a mm-hmm. fan theory out there that he is Jules Winfield. But no. why it's a fun fan theory, it's impossible yes. just because of what he says about the people he's played with. But still, it's a fun, it's just a, you know, like I said, I've said many times, if it's a theory you enjoy and it gets you sure. off and gets you in the way, then, you know, lean into it. I don't give a shit. It's not, you're not hurting no. anybody. No. But I love that he says, he asked them to suggest a song. They, you know, what song would you like me to play? And then he he suggests one like he just like he doesn't even give him an opportunity to pick a song he goes y'all got a song you want and then they're kind of thinking he goes i can play love me tender whatever it's just like <laughs> i love I how love he's it. like he's like before they can actually suggest something that he's like you know what fuck it i'm not gonna open this can of worms i'm just gonna suggest how about love me tender by elvis which again leans into tarantino's love of, of elvis but mm-hmm. it never touched me the way it did when i was watching it, obviously to do this with you i was just like Holy shit, Rufus is just like, hey, would you guys like a song? He's like, no, fuck it. How about this song? How about this song we're going to play for you? I just love that little stroke of genius of, you know, obviously we've always said nothing is unintentional. And it's just, it's a small comedic moment that if you're not paying attention to it, it's fine. But when you start to rewatch things over and over again, and like you know how everything's going to go, sometimes you get that joy. As I'm sure now you're going, you know, I did your podcast with you. But as you go through things, you start to see things. When you right. actually start to stop and look at them, you go, holy shit, that's pretty cool. Or, oh, my God, I didn't even notice they did that. So that was just one of those moments I just absolutely love. It now makes me giggle every time I think about it. He's just like, what song would you like me to play? Because you know what? I can play this one. Almost like, fuck you. Don't even worry about it. Here's what you're, here's your your wedding song. And so I just, that was just for me, it was fun. No, I totally agree. Roof, uh, Samuel is just an amazing actor and I, I, I love, I love him in the QT film, film verse or whatever you want to call it. His, uh, his acting under QT is just a, I mean, well, again, everyone just gets the best from QT, except for Diana. But uh, that being said, this wedding sequence, it's a combination of fun, revealing, and scary. And very sentimental as well. Yeah. Very sentimental. Well, it reminds me of the sequence at the beginning of One Glorious Bastards, which I think, am I, am I coming on that one? I can't remember for a Bible study um, regarding the when the, the Jews were hiding under the... Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Lapadit. Yeah. And so that whole stressful sequence of like, where is this going to go? Yeah. Now, we know by the title of this chapter, it's a massacre. Uh, or the, we already know from Kill Bill Volume One that these yeah. people were dead, but that's that's what makes it kind of stressful. Is how because all the way they're talking and the way they're you know yes. like, you're watching it, still kind of hoping, well, maybe it won't happen. Like there's a part of you that nah, agreed, yeah. Like maybe they won't because they don't show the violence on screen, which is very interesting. Quentin Tarantino pulls outside the church, and the Viper Squad comes up with their weapons, and they walk into the church, and there's that scream from the Reverend, like, "Hey, what, what's going on here?" Yes, you, and then she guys... yells, "Bill, no!" And then it just yeah. Oh, and the gunfire goes off. It's very haunting gunfire. Like it's yes. uh, especially given today, especially in America, given today's mm-hmm. you know the today's climate. You know, I mean, obviously this is not right. technically technically would be a mass shooting, obviously, but obviously this is also this was like a murder. This was an intentional. Yeah. This was an assassination. So yeah, and all the witnesses. Yeah. Yeah, just just an assassination at a very high level that was a little overkill, but that's what happens when you break the heart of a murdering bastard. Oh, I wanted to say when uh, the bride says, "Bill, it's your bait," and then of course, boom. The headshot. Yeah. Did he hear that? Obviously, or like, so they I must, think have, cut the, they must have cut the baby out of her. Obviously, or you know, that's a good question. That's something I asked um, Steve, and I won't give up what he said. I'll let, let people, yeah, who, sure. you know, Jeff, they're jumping between to listen, but. It's a great question because it, it raises a lot of questions. Like, obviously, she's taken to the hospital and the baby's gone. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Because when I think when she, I thought she, she, well, so she feels her belly and she they never lift up the shirt. So we don't know if it was cut out or if she was in a coma 
and they had the baby, and then so then you got a question. Well, if he claimed the like, there's a lot of things that he go in and steal the baby. Like, there's a lot of things that we don't know. Well, these guys are like professional assassins, covert type operations. They could have yeah. just stolen the baby. That's what I think probably ended up happening. But at the same time, like a, a, another great thing, it just left. Never know. Yeah. You'll we'll never know. You know, we, we don't, don't know how the baby no. was acquired by Bill. Exactly. Uh, now, did he? That, here's the other question: Did he know? Because she said he says, "Oh, you got a bun in the oven or whatever." But did he? Did he even consider? I don't think he knew. Again, it must have been close. Like I said, so she went. She found out she was pregnant. She must have found this other guy. So who knows? You know, he thought she was for dead for a while. So because, well, not even for a while because it's his, it's his baby. So that means yeah. they they've only been broken up for seven or eight months. Well, he says in this scene, he mourned, or at the at the end, he's like, he mourned you for like two or three months, and after that, he went to look for the people who killed her. So, I mean, there is a possibility that he doesn't know how far along she is, but she could be far enough along and been gone long enough that she could be start to showing. So even when she's getting married, we have no idea how far along she is either. That's another, you know, thing we don't know. I would say at least seven months. Probably close. Because it's, it's a pretty healthy belly on her. Not too bad. Like, she wasn't waddling too bad, but she was showing for sure. So I would say seven months. I think you and I are able to say that because we both we have kids, so we, we know how what our wives look like at, as they progress, where Bill, this is the only child he ever had, and he has probably no fucking clue. So he is probably in the dark about how far along she truly mm. is. You know, like, he probably yeah. he probably buys that it is Tommy Plimpton's child that he doesn't Did know. Did the bride know at any point? Like... Because she says, like, you know, you promised to be good. Did she really believe the wedding was going to happen? Was there a part of her that believed that Bill was there just to watch? So I wrote this down. I was going to bring it up. She totally misses Bill's comment as last looks, as a statement that is a purposeful line to her that she doesn't get uh, when she asks, what, you, what are you doing here? And he goes, last looks. It, it came across sweet as if he was getting last looks of her as the bride as before she becomes woman. married, but that's not what he was talking about. And well, she, that's you know, that, that was like a crazy. line that she he drops in that is so you know so tender, but yet. Here's the funny thing. As the audience, if we pay attention to that, we already know what's going to happen. That's the cue for us right there. We go, yep, right. Right, what's going to happen. She, as obviously the person who's not in the know like we are, has no clue. But that was the line. Much like I get into with my guest for Death Proof, which I recorded before you. But there's a line in Death Proof that we talk about where uh, when he repeats the sentence to Butterfly and says, you know, you have miles to go before you sleep. You know, Even though it's in a poem, he's saying, in a few miles, you're going to drive, and then I'm going to kill you and put you to sleep. Like... There are just these little lines that are mm-hmm. in there. They're just they're poetic irony. They're just said. They're beautiful. You're like, oh, it's good. And then you, you don't realize it's a really great foreshadowing of exactly what's about to happen. And I think she's apprehensive. And, I, you know, I think part of it is, you know, as she's walking out to get air, she hears his flute, which will come prevalent later on in a couple of chapters. But he's playing his flute, and she knows immediately. You can see the look on her face change. Mm-hmm. And she knows he's here. And she's very apprehensive when she walks out. She's not sure. Of his intentions. No. So I, I think the whole time, she, I mean, she knows how deadly he is. She knows yeah. exactly who he, this guy is. She has been lulled herself into a sense of security because she's his girl or was his girl and thinks that because of that, and even Bud makes a comment about it in a little bit, about no one's buffaloed Bill like she buffaloed Bill. Right. She thinks that she's got, you know, she's charmed him and like he is under her spell. And we find out that, and he even says it, when you break the heart of a murdering bastard, there are consequences. And she found him. So, yeah, I mean, their whole their whole conversation is so bittersweet. It's, you know, we spent a whole five chapters in the first film hating this man, Bill. Or at least, mm-hmm. you know, the way they hit him, the way he's not seen, the great job of creating... Uh, a character kind of like what they've done with Marcellus Wallace and other characters right. before. We just, you know, kind of like this myth of this person is built up to when we finally see him to open this movie 
Here's this sweet-looking older gentleman playing the flute, and he's there, and he looks like he's heartbroken, like the love of his life has decided that he is not the one she wants to be with. And so all of a sudden, what you know, it's almost like if you hear a rumor about someone being like, oh, this guy's an asshole, this girl's a bitch, because your friend tells you it, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I, I agree with my friend, you know, I'm, I'm on their side. But because you don't get both sides of the story, we've already created this person as a villain, but now once we see their side of the story... You feel for him. Yeah, we know he's a murdering bastard, but the man has heart. Man has feelings. And so she broke his heart. Like, And we've learned that even further at the last chapter. And like, you know, he really was devastated by what he thought was her death. And so he's pissed off that she fucking lied to him. So while he may be a murdering bastard, if you take what he does for a living out of the equation, you can kind of see where he, like I said, I'm not saying that he, what, what happens is, le- right. is legitimized, but you can see where that gentleman, now given his line of work, where that's the reaction he would probably have. And this is the probably the first time he's ever let his guard down towards a woman. You know, because when he eventually right. gets with Elle, she's just there to meet needs. You know, I, I just, yeah, you know, yeah. she's just there to fill the whole kind of thing. Right. But yeah, th- this whole section is just absolutely a beautiful look into what was, it seemed like a really good romance. A, re- a really, you know, they really loved each other. I, I believe they did. I believe they had something special. We're never really told why they broke up. Did we ever get indicated? Well, it's when she tells him at the end, is when she finds out she's pregnant, she was worried that what would happen right. is, is that this, he would then indoctrinate, like basically she would be raised to be a killer like Beatrice. Right. And she was like, I, I don't want that for my child. I want her to actually grow up and have a normal life, right. whatever that means. But she knew that Bill would not let that happen. So she did what a mother would do. She chose her children over, over the, the possibility of danger for her life. Regardless, it's funny. No matter what she did, it looks like her life may have depend. You know, we probably would never get the Kill Bill Volume Three, but it looks like she was maybe always fated to possibly having to be this way, anyways, because of the two parents and who they are. Right. Yeah. Great opening. The sad thing is, is in this film, in this moment, the real victims here are Tommy and the rest of the gang. Right. They have no idea. No. They he's, were I mean, they get fire. murdered for nothing. They're just, he just thinks he's met some cool lady who is like punching way above his weight. Yeah. In his weight class. She seems to want to be with him. And he's like, well, shit. Right, this is like, I'm going to start a family. Who's going to say no to Uma Thurman at that yeah. time? And so no this poor guy and these, everyone else in the church gets massacred for nothing. I mean, talk about yeah. wrong place wrong time i feel bad for them. they're the real victims not her because obviously with the daughter that's a horrible thing but she is a killer i think we forget about that i think because she's our star she's really a bad person too she's a horrible human being as well now obviously we start to feel for her because she's a mother and she lost her child so we can all identify with that but at the end of the day she's no different than a manson member of the family yeah if a right. manson member had a child you'd be like oh that's great but you know you wouldn't have like this place in your heart tarantino's a great job of making this villainous character who she really would be she's a part of the diva squad into right. being like our hero and we're like oh Oh, we feel so bad for Beatrix. At the end of the day, she's really a horrible person. She was, she's you know, she was out to kill somebody when she finds out she's pregnant. Yeah. And look how many people she was willing to kill just to get revenge for losing her child. Like, she's not a Hallmark mom. We're not like, you know. No, she's she's your or our rooting for her. We want her to get her revenge. And like Bud says in that great scene, you know, she deserves her revenge. Yes. In the same scene. Like that that kind yeah. of parlays in with it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that sequence. Yeah. Well, I actually want to talk about there, there's yeah. something you can add to your questions, actually. Yeah. I was thinking about this here. Now, you can add you don't have to, but I was thinking about your questions. And I was thinking about yeah. when I was watching this film. And Quentin does this a couple times in his films where it's a negative question, so I don't want to be negative, but it is a negative no, question. No, go ahead. No, please. The question would be, 
when the buildup doesn't pay off. Okay. Or I don't know how to word it. No, no, what you mean? For example, the sequence when Beatrix and uh, L Driver. L Driver, thank you. When they yeah. fight off, they square off. I love that whole fight. That fight was amazing. Yes. You could argue. You could argue that was the lead off. That was when they both draw the swords. It was a very nothing happened. And I always remember thinking like they 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 cross swords and there's a strength yeah. contest and we know what happens. Of course, you know the point is I wish they kind of had more sword play. So me because I love swords. I granted yeah. we got a lot of it in Volume One. I get it. We got to. Yep. I want to see. Well, actually, I cover a lot of this when we get, which will be after your episode next week, which will okay. be the second Bible study for this month, and we actually get okay. into the L versus oh, Beatrix okay. fight. So incredible fight. I yes. love it. It's brutal. It's amazing. Well done. Great sound effects. Great violence. Uh, brutal. I cringe, and you watch it halfway with your eyes half open. It's just like they're beating the crap out of each other, and amazingly filmed. Where did anyone really get hurt? Like you got to want these little stunt ladies. Good. For I them. know. I know. But that being said, when they cross swords, I was like, not the payoff. I and I've never recovered from. Even though now I know it's coming, I kind of wish there was just more swordplay. Like they had gone out maybe outside the camper and did some out in the open type. Anyways, your points are very valid. Okay, I have a question for you. Sure. Right before she gets married and they're standing there, and he says to her, "If he's the man you want, then go stand by him." If she had decided not to. If she had had a second feeling, would the event still have happened? Do you think Bill still would have killed everybody? Or would they have quietly walked out? And Because she already told him he was her dad. Like, wh- what do you think would have happened? I don't know. I think maybe that's a good question. Alternate universe. Uh, if she had met him outside, I'm like, she's like, you know what? I don't know if this is the life for me. Uh, seeing you now makes me realize. And just so you know, this baby's yours. If she got that all out right away, there might have been a whole different conversation. You know, I can't believe you're here, here Bill. I came up to get some fresh air because I'm stressed out. I don't know if this is what I want. Because that was kind of talked about at the end of the film where you know that which i've got that yeah. for my uh one of your questions that whole dialogue there about who they are as people i think if kiddo said hey yeah, yeah seeing you now makes me realize i've made a wrong choice i will you take me back and by the way this baby's yours just so you know let's just go <laughs> it's fun to think right. about I, I i was thinking about that then. i was like hmm. obviously we don't have the movie but in another universe i wonder if things had turned out differently yeah there might be another universe where that happened yeah not it's fun film to watch but yeah yeah oh agreed now, right before this chapter ends, what we've learned in this chapter is we learned that obviously Bill, the one female he truly loved and let his guard down to was obviously Beatrix. But we also learn that him and his brother have had fractured differences mm-hmm. from this. Now, I have two beliefs on it. Well, I have one belief and there's a fan belief. The fan belief is, and I kind of lean towards it a little bit, but Bud and Bill had a falling out due to a love triangle mm-hmm. over L Driver, as obviously L Driver has always been jealous of Beatrix because she wants Bill and then fills the void once Beatrix is gone. The other thing is, is in this, after this moment, the massacre at Two Pines, it feels like the divas, they fracture apart because almost immediately, Vernita Anita Green's gone. She goes off and becomes someone else. She may have already been dating someone on the side. She becomes Jeannie Bell. She changed her name, and then she eventually gets pregnant and has a kid of her own. So Bill, Bill let that happen, which is weird. We've got, as we talk about in the first volume, you've got Oren Ishii. She goes back over to Japan, and he helps her take over the Yakuza. But she goes over, and she's no longer really technically a part of the Divas. She's now running the Yakuza, which obviously has its benefits for Bill, of course. And then Bud just says, fuck it. Whatever he does, he just decides to, to disappear into frozen margaritas, titty bars, and, you know, the desert of California. And the only person who stays by his side is Elle. This moment is, not only is it the technical death of the bride, but yeah, it's the death of again. that whole group. Like, this, that yeah. moment ends everything. No, no it really point, fractures yeah. everything. And so when they finally meet each other and see each other, you know, we can tell that Bud is deeply 
wounded by his brother. He lies to him about pawning his Atari Hanzo sword for 250 in El Paso. So we, we can see that Bill has a way of just like pretty much leaving nothing but destruction in his path when things don't go his way. Or, you know, he just has a tough time with real human connection outside of like when he says to the bride, like as opposed to making large sums of money, killing human beings, like that is who Bill is to his core. Like even though he may be a good father, whatever, you know, we may learn down the road, but it seems like to his core, the one calling in his life that he loves, like almost like he's a professional athlete, is he loves killing human beings and making large sums oh, yeah. of money for it. Like I almost feel like he had, like if we had panned down, he would have been rock hard after saying like, it's almost like that was like what really gets him up in the oh, morning yeah. is that kind of thing. But it leads us to chapter seven, mm. The Lonely Grave of Paula Schultz. And this has one of my favorite side characters ever, Larry Gomez, played by the great Larry Bishop. I fucking love the whole scene of Bud showing up to the titty bar late. And the whole yes. boss scene, the whole, is that Bud? Get your ass back and sit hey, Bud. It's just, I love how they keep treat him like such a like, like a little child. Like, Bud can hear him yelling for him. But Sid Haig goes, Bud, Larry would like to see it. Like, so I love the whole thing. But the take a hit, be somebody, baby. It's just, I don't know why. Every time he says that, it's just such a, like, you're in this shitty-ass titty bar in the deserts of California, and you've got this stripper in your room, and he's like, take a hit, be somebody. Like, like anybody in that room is anybody. I just, I don't know what it is about Larry Bishop as the role of Larry Gomez, no, he, but yeah. that was a great sequence. his whole interaction with Bud, right. because we know Bud's a killer. And at this time, Bud has had his nuts clipped, his tails between his legs. Like, he's a shell of himself. Like, he is what he might have been. Where Bill, we always feel like, God damn, you don't trust Bill. Like, you're always like, Bill could kill you at any second, like Pi May. In this film, at this moment, Michael Madsen as Bud, brilliant. Talk about could have, should have been nominated for something. Like, what an amazing role he plays in this, showing real acting chops. But he has such this loser down in his look. Like, just like a sad puppy dog. He's just been beaten one too many times. And you're like, you've got this one guy who runs this titty bar and... And as we learned, he yeah. also run, ran a car wash. <laughs> I don't know, car wash you worked at that lets you stroll in 50 minutes late, but I owned a car wash. I just love that character and how we get to see this real power dynamic switch. I almost feel like I'm more intimidated by Larry than I wow. am by Bud. I'm almost like, Bud's a pussy. Like, she's going to be able to kill him without even, you know, without even sneezing. At least that's what, you know, we interpret before the scene gets for, further. Well, I didn't know his name, Larry Bishop. So thank you for bringing that up. I He looked familiar, but when I went to his Wikipedia page, he's just a bit actor. He's a bit Yes, there's been a lot of B-movies, but again, like we said, Tarantino finds these characters, yeah. and he falls in love with them, and they make it to his film, and you go, like, yeah. it's, like it's the greatest movie he's ever been. It's great. Yeah, it's, it's a great, great role, and you just, you feel the pain of Bud, because we've all had a boss like this, and uh, you're like, why didn't he kill him? But I think it's supposed to lead, I think the reason why that happens, I think we're led to believe that Bud is not good anymore at yes. being a killer. I think yes. it's a it's a misdirect uh, for the audience because when he rock salts uh, <laughs> I that scene that's a violent scene that I can never stomach very well. I just the fact that her the, like like Buzz said those beautiful breasts are now scarred yeah. by like Bud, you idiot. Could you hit her like in the arm or the shoulder or the gut? Well it's maybe? another great turn because what Tarantino does, you know, like a lot of movies, you know, the hero ha you know, again, a lot of great movies, great action movies, the hero has to run into an obstacle, look like they're down to be able to rise again like a phoenix. Right. But we've watched her go through eighty eight well, you know, as they say, eighty eight people. She's right. fucked everyone up in volume one. So we're like, what's the difference in volume two? Why wouldn't it be the 
the same. And I like that, you know, obviously she probably picked those first two as she felt that they were the two easiest targets to go after. Right. Yeah. So it's like a video game. Where Bud and L Driver were not, the, you know, the, she knew those were going to be a lot harder characters to take out once she got to Bill. So, you know, I'm not saying like Oren's a, a, a pushover by no means or Vivica Fox, but in her mind, she knew them. She assessed, who do I go after first? Let's start off easy. Let's get myself, you know, worked back into shape, take out these guys, and then I'll get to Bud and I'll get to L and I'll, you know, maybe by then I'll be at top form. We should have known that as an audience, but we, we just don't pay attention to it. We just think it's just random list. It's not a random list. It's just, I think she organized it, but this Larry Bishop character has two of my favorite lines. I've used this a lot. Are you trying to convince me that you're as useless as an asshole right here and he touches his elbow? Yes. You fucking convinced me. I've used that so many times. The people I've worked with are just useless. I'm like, you convinced me. Yeah. I must use whenever someone's fucked up, or even just in friend groups, it's calendar time. It's calendar time for Buddy. My favorite moment in that though is, is we're talking about Bud's this killer. He talks, he goes, the only way you kids understand is fucking with your cash. I looked at him and I'm like, you're the same fucking age. Like that's how little he thinks yeah. of Bud. He thinks of Bud as like this little oh, sure. peon who's a nobody and the only one he's going to learn this kid he's hired is by fucking taking it in the fucking face with losing his money. I just love just the whole way he talks down to him. Just the way Bud just has to sit there and fucking take it. Yeah, and you feel bad for Bud. In fact, the the one part that is actually the worst, not the worst part, the worst for Bud for whatever reason, where you almost like it broke your heart a little bit. This guy's just broken. When uh, Larry Bishop's character says, and one more thing, that hat. Why do you wear that stupid hat or the cowboy hat? And Bud takes it off and he doesn't wear it outside. Like when he goes, he, he takes it off and holds it and he's, he's embarrassed. Like when you have your friend say, "Oh, it's a stupid shirt you're wearing," and you're like, "Oh, embarrassed." <laughs> Like it's a grown. This guy has killed people with his bare hands, mm-hmm. and he's being uh, stripped apart by this uh, boss. And he takes off the hat. Like, oh, I look stupid with this hat. You can tell that this wasn't an act. Like he felt embarrassed to be wearing the hat. He goes, "Well, I like this hat, but now you're embarrassing me." And he takes it off. And he actually, I think he wears it off his head as he goes to his truck outside. Do you know how that scene came about? No. Michael Madsen was wearing that hat on set a lot, and Tarantino fucking hated it. He, he was like, dude, try, he was trying to get him to convince to take it off, and he didn't want to. He liked it. So Tarantino added that moment in the film so That's that awesome. Michael Madsen had to sit there so when Bishop is like, that hat, that fucking hat, Hat that shit kicking. <laughs> I'm not the boss of the customers, and the boss that whole thing was Tarantino's revenge on Madsen to have to sit that's there because awesome. he hated that fucking hat. And it's a great line, so I think that's kind of why you get the great reaction from Michael Madsen because he knows he's just like kind of yelled at my friend. So it's, I think it works so well. Oh, that's great. When you, you learn know, about QT, that backstory, you're just like, that's fucking awesome. QT's uh film that just laughing, he's probably back there, just like, yeah, he's oh, he's oh, just, he's loving it. Yeah, yeah you had to. But we get home, or we get to the, you know, he drives home, and we all have an idea that this is this is what's going to happen. We have an idea when he gets home, B's going to be there somewhere. Now, like you said, we have been led to believe something that is not 100% necessarily true, and that is that Bud has no longer got anything going for himself. He knows almost instantly when he pulls up, he's out of his truck. Yes. There's an instinct. Something kicks on, whether it's a the spider sense or a, a disturbance yes, in the Yes, there's force. a disturbance in the force. He feels that she's there. Yeah. And everything else we see afterwards is him play acting. Funny thing is, is then he lets his guard down a little bit when we get to chapter nine. But at this point, he's on the, all of a sudden he's on the top of his game. Maybe it's because he just took a tongue lashing and is kind of like, what the fuck is wrong with me? You know what I mean? Maybe he's, why am I letting people walk on me and treat me like shit? I don't know Almost about like, that. do you know who the fuck I am? But the minute he gets out of that truck, he was like, he hmm. fucking knows. Like, yeah, he knows. He's back. Like, all of a sudden the him. switch came back on. Yeah. Yeah, the survival switch. It's well, like we talked about Rambo. Yeah, the yeah, switch right. was flipped and he's like, oh, I'm 
I'm back where I need to be. My question for you is this. It's a shit trailer. He doesn't unlock the door. He right. walks in the trailer. Why is Beatrix hiding under the fucking trailer? Why is she not in the trailer? So when he opens the door, sword to the chest, out he goes, and then whatever she has to do there, dice him up, find out where Bill's what. This is where think- Beatrix actually outsmarts herself. Again, I do understand, folks, that we wrote it's written this way. It's designed this way for what we get. Right. But I'm just I, asking, in a, if this is a real-world scenario, why? Well, I think the way Beatrix gets her revenge is she's unlike Al Driver. She does it face-to-face. I don't think she's a covert killer. I think that's the honor system. Everyone she's killed, it was a fight. It was face-to-face. Uh, she might surprise attack you, but she won't poison you, snake bite you like Al Driver. I mean, she faces everyone kind of in their home. You know, the fight beginning, of course, part one with uh, Vivia Fox. So I think, to her credit, I think that's what it is. I think she's hiding, but she's going to fight him. She's going to break in and say, I'm here and let's go. That might be the only thing I can think of. This is why I have guests on. This is why I ask them these questions. That's sure. actually a really good point because, you know, you actually made me think as you're talking about it. I'm like, no, no, yeah, he's fought. So everyone the same way. Similar to what Pi May does when we get to him. He actually almost wants the contest. He's like, see what you got. I want to see what you can bring to me. So I guess maybe she has learned the fighting style like him and she's like honorable fighter. It's a, it's like an honor thing. Yeah. Now I'll reverse that question for Bud. Now he shoots her in the chest with rock salt. That leads me to believe that one, he had prepared for this. He was ready in case it happened. He should know how dangerous she is. Like if he's already just been told by his brother a couple maybe days earlier. I mean, the guy who swore a blood oath, all she has to do is mention his brother's name and he's creating the greatest sword ever made by a man to kill everybody. Why isn't he just killer? Like why why is he messing around and, and playing with fate and being sneaky and shooting her in the chest with rock salt just to gentle her up and to bury her alive? Like, why are we fucking around with this person? Well, he's sadistic. You know, you don't you don't toy with a bear if it comes in your house, so you want it dead. You're not going to like, yo, yeah. you know, toy but the bear the, and put in a cage. But sadistic. That's his thing is he's sadistic. He's a creep. I think he likes to watch. He's the type of person that plays with the prey. Plays or, with his food before he kills it. Yeah. yeah, before he eats it or kills it. So you're right. You're thinking like, why don't I just kill the person attacking me? But for Bud, it's about like, I think he's, I forget the exact dialogue, but when he's talking to her, he, you know, it stings, doesn't it? Like he enjoys, look, why do murderers would look, I listen to a few true crime you know, podcasts yeah. my time. No, you hear some really points. horrible stories. Like People get a kick out of torturing people and uh, causing pain before their ultimate death. So that's, I think what we have here, yes, is a bit of a plot device because you're right, she's not dead. He could have had, that could have easily just been a shotgun and she would have been blown apart. But for Bud, it's about the torture and and uh, playing with his food before he eats it. Another great point. Another great point. I'm on board. Yeah. I just, sometimes, you know, it's when you... They all have their own styles. I think that's what you're seeing. Yes. Everyone has their style of fighting. Yes. We'll get to, of course, L Driver and her style. It kind of goes to things I may have said to you, but I've said a lot, is what makes these movies great. What I really enjoy about Tarantino is he allows the flaws that they have, their character flaws, to sometimes be their downfall. But it makes it feel yeah. very realistic. You know, this character flaw of his, of, you know, or, or even for her, her character flaw of, I've got to fight them clean instead of, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm going to fight them the way they would fight me. Gets her in the issue she's in in this scene. Same thing for him. If he had just killed her, things might have been different for him, you know? So always fun to kind of dig into these moments of why do these characters do what they do? You know, there's so much depth to the characters, unlike, and again, I'm not taking a dump on Star Wars or the MCU because I love all of them. Sure. But it's why these characters sometimes feel a little bit more constructed right. and we like them more is because we get a real sense of the humanity as opposed to like, oh, this character has got to get from this point to this point and we'll have some character arc to get him there but sometimes it just feels like we already know they're going there as opposed to we kind of meet 
these people mid of their journey. We don't know a lot about their backstory. You know, we learn most of the stuff by being with them and we get to see some of these flaws and these flaws come to fruition and sometimes are their demise, which I really enjoy that. I feel like, you know, we're not getting cheated in the story. You did say something about him being creepy. Right. I was surprised at how quickly he had the night night juice so readily available sure. to put someone to sleep. Like that felt like that was always he has this on hand at all times. Yeah. I'm not saying that he rapes people, does other things, but he's just prepared. I guess that's the best way to say it. he's sure. prepared to put you asleep. To, like you said, to be sadistic, do what he's gotta do. It was a little creepy that he was had that so readily available at his disposal to be ready to put to put someone to sleep. But I also loved that right before he does get Give her the old shot that he has. The spit contest where she spits blood at his face. And right. it's almost like that whose dick's bigger contest. And he's like, oh, that's cute. And he just gobs that yeah, giant so stream gross. of spit across their face. And then he goes, I win. I love that he just adds that in. It's it's like a brother moment, like a sibling moment where like your the younger brother thinks they got the upper hand and the older brother's like, oh no, I've been doing this far longer than you have, son. And they, they get you with something like that. But it's those little comedic moments that break some of the tension just for moment you know what i mean like it kind of lets you off the hook for a second to breathe and have some fun before we jump back into like what's going to happen to her next like we have no idea at that point so we definitely have now found out what Bud's potential is. And then we go to the lonely grave of Paula Schultz. Even in that segment, you know, we get the short little guy. Oh, that's what the white women call the silent treatment. <laughs> He's just, yeah, he always has little these great little side characters. He's not quite such a great little I don't, lines. I don't, I don't know. He's like maybe five feet tall. It's just a fight. The way uh, the way Bud picks him out of the grave, almost like a little kid. It's kind of funny. Yeah, like and he forces this poor short guy to like dig deeper. He's like, "Get me out of here!" (laughs) I've always wondered about that relationship. It's weird. I wonder if that was Spud, Bud and Spud. Well, I love the fact that he goes, "Isn't she the cutest piece of blonde pussy ever seen?" Sears. Yeah. And then he goes, "I've seen better." I love that. I've seen better. And he snores. It's just so great little moments. But we do find out that Bill is. You know, as much as Bud has kind of earlier, like, doesn't seem to have a great relationship with his brother, but you can see that he really does care about his brother and that what he's doing, as you said, was to get revenge for her breaking his brother's heart, which is why. Right. And what a great scene. The, just talk about that. Giving you claustrophobic feel, the way they shoot it with her in there. And just the, watching the nails be driven into the wood. Just, you know, just playing with your mind of like you're watching your death be sealed, your tomb yeah, be sealed great. to know you're going under. I saw it in the theaters of course, I just remember the uh, theater sound of that conk conk that it, it comes out of nowhere and it startled me I remember because it was dark and just that sound of the hammer on the wood and the nail it's just so loud, don't, don't, and that's what it sounded like for her in this tight little box, it's a very stressful moment, anyone that's claustrophobic would have a hard time watching the sequence uh, yeah. I wanted to say though, Bud, we've talked a lot about Bud because he's been in a lot of this film so far Yes, yes. He's, Michael yeah, Madsen he's... he kills this role, this is peak Michael Michael Madsen. Every line he delivers is amazing. Absolutely. The way he delivers it. And that sequence, before she went into the ground or into the coffin, when she was fighting, you know, she was squirming like a worm. She was tied up. And he pulls out that mace, the bear mace, and pokes it right yeah. into her eye. And the way he convinces her, it's a very, like, whole... He's like, now you're going in that grave. Now, whether you want to go in blind or not, I'm giving you the sight. I'm giving you a flashlight. But if you want to be blind and have your eye sockets burning out, like, oh, she's like, I guess there's that. But the way he convinces her, even her, like, don't fight anymore or you're gonna, I'm gonna melt those out of your eye sockets or whatever, her eyeballs. Like, holy, he's played such a, yes. it's like a calm anger. It's hard to explain. He never really yells or screams or anything. He's just a scary. Yeah. He's in complete control. He goes, You have, you don't have any power. I'm showing you a small amount of mercy right now. 
It gives her a flashlight. I'm going to put you into the ground with the flashlight, but if you're going to continue to be a horse's ass, burn your eyeballs out of your fucking sockets. It's your choice right now. Choice A or choice B. I love how she doesn't answer with her mouth. She just points her head. I love that answer. Yes. Such a good way to respond as opposed to we don't need her to say anything. Yeah. Good. And you almost, that that physical act, of course, no dialogue, but the way she nods her head at the flashlight. It's such a great, those are great little moments where I assume Quentin, is that in the script? You know, nod curtly at the flashlight. Like those, I I always wondered about that. If you never know, it maybe it is. A lot of times it is, but uh, you know, knowing him, maybe they tried it both ways. Right. You know, and then editing Sally Menke, the late great Sally Menke, phenomenal editor, did not get should have been nominated almost every time she did one with him, but unfortunately didn't. Probably them sitting there going, "Yeah, that's the choice. The the nods is the best best choice for this." That leads to chapter eight and the cruel tutelage of Pi May. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about just myth building and character building throughout this entire film. Every character, except right. maybe Vernita Green. Maybe she's the only one who didn't get, you know, she gets thrown right in. Like, punch to the face, and away we go with them. The other ones, you know, obviously, Oren gets a backstory kind of thing. We learn a lot about L Driver. We get this Bud scene. So a lot of them get great mythology from all these characters. And none greater than Pi fucking May. I am a fan, being in America, I, we both, as we talked about, we both grew up in the same time frame. Kung Fu Theater on Saturday afternoon. Sure. This is, I mean, this is right out of that. This is right out of that love. This is that, you know, I can still see the, hey, huh, you know, the, the really bad voiceover stuff, but it was so great when you're a kid. You love it. You would do it outside with your friends. You would pretend to fight. You'd be like, ah, make your lips move. And a guy like Pai Mei, who is an actual character from other movies, right. the fact that he's in this and the fact that we see him and we get this great character. And again, it starts off with he's built up before we ever see him. And we learn the flute. We get to see Bill with the oh, flute. Oh, that sequence. Okay. Great sequence. Can but I spoil something in terms of Please do. I discussion? mean, at this point, it's 18 years. If You're you're not spoiling anything at this no, point. No, but I mean, regarding your questions, because one of your questions is, uh, what is your favorite scene from the film? And it's hard to pick a scene because this film is just yeah. chalk. It's a well, yeah. scene after scene. The after whole scene. movie, yeah. yeah. There's a few that I don't like, and that's almost easier to talk about. <laughs> okay. A couple yeah. that yeah. I, like, like that intro at the beginning, for example, yeah. that's one of the weaker scenes. It's almost like, but everything else is so good. So my favorite chapter is probably how I would word this one for me is this chapter, this whole chapter, the way it starts with the uh, the legend of Palme with the flute playing by uh, Carradine, the way Uma is like looking at him with so love filled in her eyes and wonder. This is the night before she gets trained. Uh, Bill coming down the, the the stairs and the way Uma looks throughout this whole training montage and then her fight with Pai Mai at the beginning. The oh the screaming of pain when her arm is broke uh, being broken. All that stuff. It's just yes. this whole chapter from beginning to end when she climbs out of the grave. The, the music score. It's the best chapter. Probably the best fifteen. 20 minutes of any Tarantino film, hands down. I'm tending to agree with you. It's absolutely phenomenal. Everything, every sequence in the moment, every everyone is just yeah. on. Carradine, Therma, and uh, what was the guy's name that played Pai Mai? I forget. Oh, Gordon Gor- Liu? Was Gordon Liu, yes. Because he also played the bald leader of the uh, Crazy 88 yeah, in Volume 1. He plays two. So two characters play two roles. Yeah. Earl McGraw uh, is in Part 1, and then... James Parks who plays him, and then he plays uh, Senor Viejo, Esteban Viejo, in this one. So, which is, you know, we have two guys playing two different roles in both different movies, and they're both 
Phenomenal both roles. But Pai Mei, uh. the story that he tells about the killing mm-hmm. of the Lotus Clan is actually a real story that is believed about the guy that they kind of, that this Kung Fu world has created Pai Mei to be. There was a belief that back in China, this guy actually helped get this clan of uh, monks killed, that he was one of the reasons that they all died. So he takes some of that lore and he builds it. And right. when Bill's telling the story, it's a lot like, you know, when we hear about Marcellus Wallace in Pulp Fiction about, you know, he threw a man out of a fucking apartment building because he touched his wife's feet. So right off the bat, when we first see Ving Rhames' character as Marcellus, we're like, it's a bad motherfucker. Like, we, we definitely don't want to mess with him. Same thing with Paime, which may be even better with Paime because of the story, you know, just because a guy didn't return a nod he may or may not have seen. A polite gesture that Paime very rarely gives was not returned, and because of that, he kills an entire fucking Shaolin temple. He's like, what the fuck? It's insane. So we know right off the bat, you're like, man, this dude's tough. Like his lore is, and again, he said, you know, it was 18 ot something like, or, or, you know, right before the 1900. So it's like, or 1908 or whatever it was. You're I like, think it was 1008. Oh yeah. No, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. He's like, oh my God, 18. So you realize he's a thousand years old and you're like, wow. I love and again, that. you know, yeah. you're thinking, okay, whatever. And then he talks about, and again, he does this in a lot of movies. He's, it's his MacGuffin. It's like he shows the gun, but he never shows the gun. He talks about it. Mm-hmm. And we should know that it's going to come. But we wait so long that by the time we get to the her fighting him, we've forgotten about the five point palm exploding heart technique that he talks about. Yeah. You know, we just think it's one of those funny things. It seems so obvious when you rewatch it. Because he says he doesn't teach to anybody. Yeah. You, you would think, oh, of course she's going to do. But you, you forget yeah. that comment. Absolutely. The way she gets her ass kicked by his training, you forget totally yeah. that. And yeah, there's no that indication that minutes, he shows yeah. her. And it was originally 10. They originally, in the original script, it was going to be 10-point palm exploding heart technique. And they thought, oh. that's going to be one hell of a fucking thing to try to show her do. You know, because the way she does it, she does it great at the end. But the hand speed with which you've got to make it look realistic, you're hitting 10 points and making his heart explode. You know, you've got to be almost a kung fu master to have the almost Bruce Lee-like hand speed to be, you know, to be able to, just, you know, without someone, you know, even trying to stop your hands. I think they cut it down to five to make it a little bit more realistic as opposed right. to 10. But he's evil fucking Yoda. At a thousand years old, he easily, easily defeats Bill. Which is fun because here's the thing, though. As an audience member, when she goes up there and he goes, if you can land one blow, I will bow down and call you master. And we still think, well, this is the bride. We're like, she's our hero. She's going to, we should have known. She just got shot in the tits of rock salt. So she's sometimes is defeated because of maybe a little cockiness sometimes. Maybe because, you know, you've killed 82 people. You think you can get this one bum in a trailer. So when she starts fighting him... (laughs) <laughs> get the sword, and he just steps out of the way of the sword and stands on it. You know, up here you can yeah. see a better foot of my foot. Kicks her in the face, does yeah. that backflip off it. It is such a great kung fu theater homage. I was like, it made me so joyous. It was just everything yeah, I remember it, from my Saturday morning watching it, but felt like it was better than anything I'd seen before. Well, yeah, it's kind of, was it comical? But again, when he stands on the floor, but stands on the sword and says, oh, better look at my foot at this angle. But it's all kind of a little comical and fantasy-like. But then when he grabs her arm and bends it backwards there's nothing funny about that the pain and the pain that she's in but the acting again by uma there where she's like saying you know like you're useless uh right now you're powerless against me and she's like what's the japanese or the chinese word she was saying for yes ha yeah i think ha. Ha. Yeah, ha. yeah and then bow for no uh boo yeah something like that. yeah 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 but the way she was just like completely at his mercy and he showed mercy but when he says like, because he says, I'm going to chop off your arm with his bare hand. He was going to yes. chop off her arm. And I believe that was not. Oh, yes. No, no. Yeah. That's what I mean. 100% believe he was going to be able to. Yeah. Not only that, he wasn't too sure if he wasn't going to do it. I think 
Beatrice convinced him there's something in her plea that stuck to Pai Mei. I think there's a part of that would just as easily would have just disembered her right there. I think he appreciated her spunk to want to take him on. But then also, I think, which maybe why when we get into why L lost her eye, I think he, like he said, you know, he doesn't like American women, Caucasian, right. blonde, sass, the whole thing. I think he saw that, but she was also willing to like accept defeat. Some humility and could be trained as opposed to, yep. you know, there are people out there who when they fail, they still they don't ever take responsibility for their failure or want to get better. And which is why he they saw something fail. for sure. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. And you can see as as we go on through the scene, there's something in his eye when he sees her do certain things like he kind of is like, mm, OK, yeah, I, th- I think this is the one who's going to maybe be be the one. And it doesn't it doesn't hurt that she's hot. Just like, uh, like yeah. uh, Bill said, hey, he's an old man. It's like old, old man. He's lonely. Yeah, well, if you were sitting in the theater and you didn't think he was going to be able to cut her arm off, 10 seconds later, when he punches his hand from three inches away through solid wood, you know immediately, oh, he could easily take her arm. And then you also realize that he probably is the most dangerous, like we talked about, like you said. He may be the most dangerous character because a three-inch punch to go through, like that solid wood is a lot harder than a human body. He's punching through and taking your heart. I would have loved to just see a scene like that, but they didn't do it. I would have paid just a little extra for that to be in one of the scenes somehow. He's, you know, We do a flashback and he's punching through and pulling someone's heart out. (laughs) But if you had the ability, like, would you train for two to three years to have that strength? Like, I I... I think I would give up two to three years of my life, be as close as I am to this desk and be able to Punch through something that fast and that hard and just obliterate something. Like, that's unbelievable power. I don't know. That's true strength. I don't know. It is. Maybe, maybe it's just a sickness in me. No, no. I mean, that's what he asked. Like, do, do you do you want this power? Is this something you... Like, he was going to show her how to do it. That's, that's really an interesting question. Like, you know, he's like, do you want this power? Is this something you, the, that you want? And she's like, yes, I want to be like that. So... Yeah, I think he's all for training you and being powerful, but you're not going to take him on in the... In, in the no. In the long run, even if th- you learn it, yeah, yeah, even if you learn his techniques, he's going to be able to defeat you. Reminds me again of uh, Rocky and Apollo when Apollo tells Rocky, "Why well, I almost taught you everything." Well, I'm glad you brought up Rocky because I wanted to ask you. Sure. Since you're a huge Rocky fan, I love the Rocky movies. My favorite Rocky movie is four. Sure. It's just that it's 80s. Is it the best one? Probably not, but it's my well, favorite. I, I know. I understand. I love the training sequence from Rocky Four. I think it's my favorite training sequence it's of great all of And Rocky yes. does an amazing training sequence montage. It's the king of the training montages. Yes, it is. Now, where would you put this training montage? Because I love this training montage. Mm-hmm. Does it have the same heroic build-up music that Rocky does? No, but at the same time... It's very well done. Yes. I, lo- I, lo- well, I love it. I I love it. I don't know where I rank it against the Rocky films per se, but definitely being maybe the top three. But I definitely, uh, well, I love it the way Uma looks, the way she's doing her little moves. They're doing moves together, silhouetted. Uh, the music score is very good. Yeah, it's a very, very well done. She punches the wall while she's sleeping and hurts her yeah. hand. Yeah, oh, that's a great little moment too when she's like, yes, yeah, sleeping or resting, and she just out of like instinct punches the wall. And her, the pain she goes through with her hand punching on the wood it stresses me out. Yes. Yes. It's true. Because it does look like she's actually cutting her yes. knuckles. Again. It really does. I'm going to say it a thousand times. Uma Thurman's acting. Like, obviously, she's not really breaking her knuckles in real life. She's acting. If that close up is not her hand, then Miss Zoe Bell is hurting her hand on this wood. Oh, so much stunt double. So I'm very impressed by it. Yeah, with this, with the pain that she shows on her face, especially that uh, when she's wearing the hoodie over her head and she's in bed and hits the wall in her sleep. That's a great little moment. Yes. And I think this is the moment that seals Pai Mei believing in her. Because yeah. right before this, you know, she's out there. Hi. That is the one moment that is, and it's not. Uma's fault. I'm not making fun of Uma. It's just the way she talked. But when she is doing that, once it's like, hi, hi, 
The way she does the high punching it, they're just her voice, the sound of it, it always makes me laugh. I always think it sounds fucking ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like it's hard to take her serious, but I know that's just how she is. That's perfectly fine. Yeah, sure. I don't know that I could punch it with a you know more, like, you know, I don't know that I would sound cooler. But just every time I hear it, it's like hi. It's just, that's funny. It I just never, I, you know what I mean? If you listen to it again, back. it's just it's just funny. I don't I'm not trying to make fun of her. She probably whipped my ass anyways, but it just always gets me a little bit like, oh, the time takes me out of saying hi, hi. But yeah. That That's moment, funny. you know, Pime does that great, you know, mustache flip and throw, which he always, I love that little grab the beard mustache, just kind of flips yeah. it, whether it's good or bad. And you can see he's impressed with her yep. continuing. But it's when she goes maybe that night and she's trying to eat with the chopsticks and she yep. can't, she throws it and she grabs the rice and he throws the rice on the floor and then gives her his rice bowl. That is the moment, I think, that decides him to teach her the five-point oh. exploding palm because he's testing her. Are you going to eat like a dog? Are you willing to give up because it hurts and it's hard? Or right. are you willing to do it? And then she picks up and she's able to do it. And you can see in his face. Because we cut from there to her being in the grave and making her way out. And she's like, all right, Pai Mei, here I come. What I love also is this whole sequence is about her learning to punch through wood from three inches away. We never know if she's able to do it, which is what I love. Right. And it's been a long time. So she's not able to easily do it inside the grave. So I love the fact that she's eventually able to. And obviously that wood is not as thick as that block of wood he's having her punch through. But a lot of movies would have, like even in a Rocky movie or even the Karate Kids, any of those movies where you do the training montage for one minute, you you can't right. do the move for anything. And by the time we end the montage, you're a fucking master in a matter of weeks. You know what I mean? All of a sudden you've gone from you couldn't crane kick anybody to now you're, you know, backflip crane kicks. And you're doing all kinds of crazy things. All of a sudden you're like, you're Bruce Lee. You right. know? So I love the fact that Tarantino doesn't cheapen it by suddenly making her, you know, she can punch through everything. Because it would have ruined the rest of the movie. Because if we learned that she could have easily punched through right. someone's chest. Why is she even fighting Vernita Green? Door opens, the music goes, and she's you know punching in and pulling her heart out, kind of, and holding it in her hand. That would have been cool too. But it doesn't cheapen it. Like he doesn't. No, he doesn't the, lose the reveal, focus. The reveal is the escape from the from the grave, which is when she says, "Okay, Pime." I think something like that. No, now the train is going to be used. Here I come, Pime, or something like that. Yeah. yeah, she finally focuses and and forgets that she's trapped alive. Yeah. Do you think it's actually possible to punch your way through a wooden coffin and then climb out of a six-foot grave? No, but Pomay is a thousand years old, so we'll let that one slide too. Yeah, so, so he kind of taught her. But I do <laughs> I do love the little thing when we watch her like climb up almost like she's going up a ladder. Like there does seem to be a lot of roots, which is weird because right. they would have dug up the ground and like, I'm not taking a shit on it. It's just fun. But like when you watch it's a it's a weird sequence. It's again yeah. it's one of the it, it's my favorite chapter and the whole music score and her coming out. Great little homage to Evil Dead slash also uh, the Romero zombie movies with the hand coming through the dirt like a zombie. Like she's basically coming back to life type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. She's risen from the grave. And I love how she walks to that restaurant with that dust behind her, the dirt falling (laughs) off her. Like Pigpen from Charlie Brown. Can I have a glass of water, please? Like you said, the great physical acting that Tarantino's able to get his actors to do. I don't know the gentleman's name who does the little cameo as the coffee shop worker. Right. But he's sitting there just stirring his coffee and drinking. And then as he's drinking, he looks up, looks out the window, and it's just that double take of like him yeah. pausing and kind of like, what the fuck is what? Just such simple, subtle, yeah. but a lot of people can't emote physical emotion. You know, you can do it in your everyday life, but when you're doing it and make believe, it's hard to do. You know, you get yourself in the mindset of, okay, I'm really actually seeing this woman walking at me, blah, blah, blah. And he just kind of looks up and he's got that like, what the fuck is it? Why? You know, yeah, no, no, no scene or, uh, or actor is wasted. Like it's, no. you're in a Quentin film. Yes. You know, everyone brings their A game. Agreed. Agreed 100%. 
But this is, like you said, this is one of my favorites. I love the whole montage. And it feels like it flies by. Like, every time we get to that scene, I go, this is going to take forever. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, shit, she's already punching away. Like, I yeah. almost feel cheated. I really wanted to see more Pai Mei. Like, I really wanted more Pai Mei in the film. And if he was ever going to do a movie, I actually would much rather see a Pai Mei prequel. I just want to see Pai Mei before, you know? Sure. Now, the only other person we know for sure who he's sent to train is right. we know for sure that L Driver goes. Do you think he sent anyone else? Do you think Bud had the same training? Do you think he sent... No, there's no way uh, Bud would have survived under Pai Mei. It would have been too reckless. I think Bill do that. What about the other ladies? Do you think the other two no. ladies had it? Well, they, we weren't told they... I, I I think it was L. I think L is supposed to be more dangerous than we think. Well, we see that fight that's coming up, but yeah, I think I think it's just who we see in the film. I think that's all that got trained by Pai Mei. Hmm, I think it was I wonder a, why that elect, is. Well, elect few by Bill. I think it was Bill selecting them for whatever reason, Bill threw his two girlfriends at Pai Mei. Yeah, maybe Maybe he lied. Maybe Pai Mei actually does like Caucasian blondes. Maybe it was a lie. Oh, yeah. Maybe he wanted to put them on the back foot to be wary. And in the reality is Pai Mei actually is really big on blonde white women from America where he lies. Yeah, he can't be. Come on. Is he really complaining about having those two in his house? Come on. You know what? The one little, the little slight that he throws at them. And I love it. And it's, look, he's a thousand year old. Sure. And so when he says like all Yankee women, all you do is spend your husband's money and order in restaurants. I was like, damn, oh, that's that. a backhanded slap at people. Like, I was like, he just cuts right to the core and doesn't even care and you're kind of like wow oh i love that i love that it's like what do you call it uh not fan service like yeah yeah that's right that's what they're like yeah yeah hi honey i love you yeah <laughs> <laughs> no it's fun but that leads to chapter nine l and i now a lot of this scene i will cover the fight in the bible study okay, coming up next sure. week but yeah. we're still going to talk about it. But it leads up before that. L and I is more than just her fighting. It's also L showing up in that sweet fucking Pontiac Firebird. I really right. love. I had a Firebird, a T top, a red one when I was in the military. But it was more of the ones late two thousand models, or I mean early to mid two thousand models that looked more like the Batmobile. Okay. If you know what I'm talking about, as opposed yeah, yeah. to this 1970s with the actual Firebird painted the you know the gold fiber painted on the actual uh, hood of the car. He has picked great vehicles for his characters yeah. when he actually shows them, and they all fit perfectly. Like, I always feel like he gets the character and its spirit animal, spirit vehicle, like, almost to the T. You know, like, Bud showing up in that piece of shit truck at his point in life, you're like, yep, that's Bud. The car that Bill shows up in, which is, uh, I forget the name of the car, but it's it's intentionally picked. It's uh, I think it translates to mongoose, and a mongoose is someone who can kill snakes, and here he is, the snake charmer, so it makes sense that he would drive a car, or Tarantino would give him a car that would, you know, basically symbolizes that he can kill every single one of these snakes if he has to, because he's that much, or at least in his mind, he's that much better than them. So I just love that Firebird. Ever own a muscle car from uh, Detroit? Anything like that in your in your no. opportunities in life yet? No, I am not a uh, I'm not a car guy. Like I I always appreciate anything that's aesthetically that's pleasing to look at. Sure, but cars don't excite me. If that makes sense, like, I don't get that's fair. A kick. I mean, yeah, you're Canadian. I, it's fair. That's all right. You you know, hey, hockey. Hey, come on, there's, there's Canadian, there's, Canadians like cars. No, I'm, I'm just sure, one of the guys. I know. Yeah. Just <laughs> I know. But uh, I just, I'm just not a car guy. I just don't uh, get excited by them. But I can appreciate any any piece of machinery that's sleek and looks nice and what have you. But I personally don't look for cars or care anything about them. Yeah. Now they have a great moment where we get Bud and L to talk, and I love. I should have mentioned one of my favorite little moments is when he calls her after he subdued the bride. And she's like, 
Bill, he goes, wrong brother, you hateful bitch. I saw yeah, yeah. That, that little retort the, way he, the way he acts, this whole movie is pretty, is pretty awesome, I know. The way he acts towards her does lend a little bit of legitimacy of people thinking that the reason that they had the fallout between him and his brother is because he actually had a thing for Elle. Okay. And the way he then responds to her, like maybe it was unrequited, maybe she always wanted Bill and he wanted her and then she chose Bill anyways. So there's a little bit of that hurt, jealousy, you know, kind of sure. like hurt that she didn't pick him and kind of like, you know, fuck this girl, fuck this bitch. I, I can't stand her or whatever. But really inside, he really kind of wanted to be with her. You get that between their little their little moment. But I love that when they're sitting there and he's making his little deck or, or his uh, frozen margaritas and she sits down and he asks her the question, you know, which are, love the fact that they use that, which are you filled with? If you had a mortal enemy and they die but not at your hands, would you be filled with more relief? Or regret? I pose that question to you. Now, I'm not saying you have a mortal enemy, but if you I can put yourself one. in a position where there was someone mm. or something, you know, you're like, you know what? Or, or how about this? I don't know if you're a sports fan. Maybe we can also put it in. If you were a sports fan, you're. Right. Uh, I'm going to just assume you like hockey. I'm a huge yeah. hockey fan. If your team, I think your team was the. Are you the Canadian? Canadians? Yeah. You a Leafs fan? Canadians. No, All right. Canadians. Yeah. So you and so you hate the Bruins. As I hate every Boston team. So I'm yeah. assuming you still hate the Bruins. Yes. I know it's been a while since that rivalry's been anything. No, but I I, I hate Toronto a little bit more. But yeah. would you rather the Canadians knock out the Bruins or Leafs, or have someone else knock them out? Well, you know what I mean. Like, would you right. rather be the team that gets them? So would you be full of regret so, that it wasn't the Canadians that beat him or would you be like fuck it I'm glad we don't have to face him in this round of the playoffs no I mean if it, if it can't be me then it can be somebody else that's fine um, but it's interesting you pose that question because I was thinking Bill when it comes to the killing of the bride doesn't seem to be too concerned who does it because remember in part one he sends Al Driver to poison her in the coma he does change his mind he yeah, did well, change he his he, mind but I don't yep. think it's out of that he wants to do his one guy I don't think I don't know if he did he <sighs> I think it's I think it's a bit of he wants if she's gonna if she's able to wake up, I think there's a part of him that in some weird realm of his mind sure. thinks that if she wakes up and she finds out that their daughter's alive, that maybe things can be fixed. And he's not gonna tell Elle that. You know what I mean? Like like I said, Elle's just filling a void, but I there's a part of me that thinks that maybe mm. he's holding hope she might wake up. And there might be a chance to reconcile, no, which yeah. I mean, I mean, when you're a sick, sadistic fuck like that, I mean, of course, you probably think that that, you know, you have that kind of power. He's the snake charmer. That's his whole thing. You know, he thinks right. he's going to be able to charm her back. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. OK. So I think at the end of the day, sure, Bill, Bill would like to do it himself. Yeah, that's fair. I just don't know why he didn't just walk into the hospital and do it then. Like, it's, it's Well, died. I think he thought he killed her when he shot her with the gun. Like, he well, thought that mean. was it. It's a weird, it's like how, uh, for a guy that's who he is, it's odd that he wasn't able to kill the bride at, at, on the ground there. Like, that shot wasn't well, lethal. Well, you know what? Maybe he softened a little bit because at this point, he's got his daughter. She's a baby at this point. So maybe there's a part of him who has softened the hair because she is the mother of their child. Again, if anyone has had a weak spot and a blind spot, it's Bill right. to her. And and, you know, if this was L, he would have killed L instantly because I don't think he has the same for her that he does for the bride. So I think there's that okay. she's his blind spot. And maybe that's why he lets her to stay alive because he, he's probably holding out hope. It's like, you know, it's that right. again, we've both been married for a long time. But, you know, when you're younger and maybe there's a girl you dated, maybe she broke up with you and you really sure. had a thing for your there, you hold out that hope that she's made come back. You she'll, she'll learn the errors of her ways. You know, how dare she leave me? You know what I mean? That almost he's holding out hope that maybe she will. You know, <laughs> say hey, I'm you know, look, me. I you know, I didn't mean to shoot you in the head. Maybe I overreacted. You know what sure. I mean? So I think he holds out that little bit of 
maybe a glimmer of hope. Uh, that's fair. But we get further information that Bond really has this thing against Elle. Because when they're talking about the whole thing about her and buffaloing Bill, he goes, Bill sure to think she was smart. And then he does this backhanded slap at her again. She was just smart for a blonde. Because she, she's just, man, he just fucking just literally Tells her to go fuck herself without telling her to go fuck herself with that little backhanded line. Sure. She's just smart for a blonde. Ugh. In my opinion, Elle is the most treacherous of all the divas, even more so than Bill. Bill, She's like I said, yes. has sentimental abilities, especially when it comes to, to the bride, to Beatrix. Elle, Elle will kill whoever, however, whenever, wherever mm-hmm. she needs to. So mm-hmm. if I had to list next dangerous, I would put Elle up there high. I know you don't like her, the actor, the actress, yeah. but as far as you look at her build, like her willingness to do whatever it takes sometimes. Oh, yeah. she's No, she is deadly. She, she surprised Spy May. Yeah. She's the next person yeah. I really wouldn't fuck with too much. Like, her and Hans Landa would be amazing husband and wife. They are two just treacherous people. Like, he's intelligently evil, and she could be his just when he decides that, nope, we're letting it loose. She's that caged animal that'll come out and do whatever it takes to get the job done. So... Elle, as, as much as you don't like her, or as, as, as Hannah, but she is the most treacherous of, yeah, of all the she demons. is treacherous. Of course, uh, I don't like how she dogged Bud. I don't like how she killed Bud. I thought it was uh, a terrible way for Bud to go. Not Of all the things, you know, yes. I, I kind of had this weird soft spot for Bud, uh, despite him doing what he did and how he is. But, uh, I mean, all these characters are like, yes, at the end of the day, no one... No one is good in this, uh, fr- uh, not franchise, but these two films. They're all murderers and, and hitmen. But as far as Bud goes, at his death, like, ah, oh, the bite in the face. And this scene, too, when she reads the stats of the Black Mamba, <sighs> yeah. it's stupid. It's actually. You don't like the, it? Oh, no. I- Oh, I, I don't. That's fine. I that's fine. It's a, oh, I enjoyed it. Okay. I just enjoyed the All gargantuan right. bit and the whole thing. I enjoy it because I'll uh, explain to you why. And okay, I think sure. some of this might be because you just don't like Daryl Hannah. And that's perfectly that fine. Like, this it, is perfectly I, I like fine. I, uh, I wish her all the best. I mean, she's a celebrity and she's rich and all that good stuff. But that, at the end of the day, I found her delivery. I don't know what it is. It's, that's perfectly it's, fine. Like, it's it's fair. Everyone, I'm not a person who's like, you have to agree with me all the time. Like, that's, no. it's it's fandom. Like, it's it's a movie at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I'm going to fuck Ryan Rebulkin. How dare he not be eye to eye? You know what I mean? Well, it would be the first time. <laughs> but, um, I think some of it is, and why you probably don't like the way she killed him, it's how Bud dies and how Pie May dies. They yeah. underestimated her. They everyone sure. underestimates yeah. her. And when they do, it's at their own peril. Sure. Yeah. And like when I watched the movie the first time, I did not expect anything to come out of that suitcase. Did you? No, no, of course not. Yeah. I didn't expect anything. I thought that what we were gonna get is it's scary when it happens. You're like, oh, you jump. Yeah, I thought when he was going through the money and they were kind of, you know, because a lot of times in movies, when things seem to be calm, that's when all of a sudden something happens. So I was like, oh, shit, any moment, Beatrix, because we know B's up on the top of the hill. She watched Daryl Hannah's character, L Driver, pull up. So we know she's there. So I'm thinking, oh, at any minute she's coming right. through the door and then, surprise, she's got to take on two of them. Right. And then we get this great fight. And then you wonder if Bud and her are going to team up. You know, it would have been cool to see. Sure. So I don't expect it. But I think the reason it happened, and the reason then Daryl Hannah goes into that whole big speech, or Elle Driver, I should say, not just the, the actress, is because she is tired of being underestimated. And when you underestimate her, I think it's her way of going like, you little fucking redneck scrub, kind of like, like what she calls him. I am superior to you. The fact that you would belittle me or think less of me or think that I would ever spend any time with you and not your brother. I think it's her way of just like really rubbing it into him like... I got the best of you for whatever, you know, again, we have no backstory with them, but how dare you ever think I would want to be with you? And like all these little things are coming out in that moment that sure. is the more you watch the film and the more you, you know, take time and you, you know, like we do, we kind of overanalyze it. 
I really do feel she is giving it to Bud. Great lines of dialogue, but she's been underestimated. Pi May thought she was a piece of shit, and she she's right. a piece of shit, let's be honest. But she's very treacherous. And when you turn your back on that, it's like a snake. If you turn your back on that snake, it's going to fucking bite you. Yeah. Don't turn your back on me. I am fucking deadly. And when you don't take me seriously, I will get you when you least expect it. And so kudos to her. I, that's why I think she's the most treacherous is, yes, it's a letdown that Bud gets killed by her. But it's also it a statement that, because also in the scene, we find out that she also killed Paime. Anyone who has not taken her seriously and has underestimated her, she's the death of them. So... I do like that as a nod. Of course, as fans, we want to see B do everything. But I do like that he sometimes says, oh, no, no, no. This is a Tarantino film. Not everything's going to go the way you want it to go. And I love that. I love that he doesn't always pay off fan service. You know what I mean? I love that it's not always the person you expect is always going to do it. Kind of like, I don't know if you're a Game of Thrones fan. And people didn't like it. But when Arya is the one who kills the Night King. Right. Like, you don't see it coming. I think that's, I mean, I'm not saying they took that from a Tarantino, but that's a very Tarantino-esque like thing to surprise you with the person you think it's going to be. It's not. You know what right. I mean? I like that. Oh, shit, we thought this was going to happen. And he's like, nope, this is how it's going to happen. I like that. Because life doesn't go the way you always think it's going to go. So I appreciate that. It may be a letdown as a fan because you expect it, but I also really do admire the fact that he's like, I don't give a fuck what you think. This is how I want it to go. Deal with it. That's fair. That's fair. Good arguments. It might just be the acting. I hate to harp on the acting so bad, but that's the only character I didn't connect with very well. That's probably fine because a few seconds later, you get a chance to have some ass whooping. (laughs) Actually, before we get that one, this is a funny question. What do we think Bud blew all his fucking money on to end up in a shithole trailer in the middle of nowhere, California? Like, I mean, because, you know, Bill's all about, you know, making vast sums of money to kill people. Like, Bud has fucking nothing. He has nothing. He's got a Hanzo sword. It's the most expensive thing in his house. Everything else, like you can set that fucking thing on fire. Everything else to me is nothing. What did he blow his money on? Like, I'm always curious. Is like, what could he have blown his fucking cash on that he has nothing left? Woman, probably. Yeah, I guess. Because, I mean, even when he says, you know, I get $250 to pawn the sword, like, you realize he's got nothing left. Like, it's just, it blows my mind that whatever happened between the time of Beatrix, them trying to kill her, and four to five years later... I mean, he is just, I mean, he's pissed it all yeah. the fuck away. So you finally get a chance for Daryl Hannah to get kicked in the face. We open the trailer, she gets kicked. Now, obviously, I'm going to go more intense through the fight. But sure. what I love about this fight scene, and I'll explain also because we'll talk about in, in the next um, Bible study. Right. But some of the reason the fight didn't go the way it was, was intentional. Originally, it was designed for it to be a fight like Oren. Okay. Tarantino actually went to the Alamo Draft House in Austin, Texas, and saw Jackass the movie. And it was Jackass the movie that changed this scene to be more, not so much comical, but over the top, like putting people through walls, like making it more of a, instead of it being such a great, beautifully choreographed fight between two warriors, almost like you get into the fight and you've like lost your sensibilities. Like you want to hurt that person so bad. Like it becomes like almost a no holds barred. And he wanted it to be like, you know, you get hit with the lamp, like almost everything you can do, like they did in their stunts to make it chaotic to make it just absolutely intense so which you know the swords are hard to get out in such a small space which i think they use that beautifully okay interesting but the sound design in that fight sequence is one of his best sound designs yes in all the sound design is gorgeous just the snaps and the pops and the way the the crisp sounds of what they do with the fighting you know when she fights go-go and she falls to the table there's that bowling ball sign that's cool but a lot of this is 
If you get it, you know, if you go back and listen to it again, just that scene, the sound design is maybe his best of all this film. And I think there was no music during that, was there? I can't remember. Well, most of it is the sound of them fighting and, and all the you know different things he does. Maybe the only sound is yeah. like when she finally goes slow-mo sidekick flying through the air, it kind of does a little something. Right, right. I didn't listen for it, but just looking back the last 24 hours, I don't think there's any musical score. It's just a boop, bop, bop, boop, 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 boop. Yeah, it was just a great take. I look yeah, forward to hearing your, uh, your breakdown of this. He goes, but it's a great fight. It's a great fight. Yeah. I think it's one of the most brutal fights, you know, in some of the modern yeah. day of, of fight sequences. Like, I, I think back to Old Boy and the Hammer fight in the hallway. Like, right. It's just a very visceral, you know, these are two trained people who know Kung Fu from Pai Mei. And they hardly use Kung Fu. They hate each other so much. It's almost like they just forget about what they can do and they just go at it. You know, like sometimes like, you see like boxers or MMA guys at the fucking weigh-ins, which are so fucking stupid. And they want to fight each other there. And like, they just start like brawling. Right. It's like they lose who they are or what their capabilities are. And they just like fucking go freestyle at it. And I, I really do appreciate that about that fight sequence. And I want to say, uh, before we move on to the next chapter, when Al Driver has her eye yes. poked out, it is a brutal Probably yes. the most brutal sequence in the film. Uh, I mean, she it's her comeuppance for sure for her betrayal to the bride and to Pai Mei, somebody that the bride, uh, I think, respected, maybe even loved to a degree. Yeah. And it's just gross. And, uh, and then Daryl Hannah, this is where I give her full yes. credit. Her freaking out <laughs> yeah. in the bathroom, smashing into the mirror, flying around, the garbage flying everywhere. Yeah. It's a hard to watch scene. It's almost comical. Yeah, she's like, yeah. come back here. Where are you? I'm going to kill you. You know, She's doing that like, I've lost, but I'm still going to talk shit. Like, you just got beat. It's like you beat someone yeah. in a sport and like, I'll kick your ass. Like, I just fucking annihilated you. What are you telling me to kick my ass? Yeah, she reminds me of a Scrappy yes. Dude. I don't know if you remember yeah. like, He's being held up. Yeah, put me down. I can yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let me at him. <laughs> Let me splat him. But uh, but there you go. Daryl Hannah there. I would say redeemed herself. But there she just killed it being that screaming, panicked, angry, all the things at once. Boy, it was it was it's hard to watch, but that's just good acting. Yeah. So I do have uh, just a few little quick questions for you before we sure. leave chapter nine and we hit to the last one. Were you pissed and or surprised that L was able to basically kill Pai Mei, like... Yeah, yeah, it's frustrating. Like I said, it's like, oh... But it's a great, yeah, so but it's it, a great nod. It just adds to you, like, Tarantino's way of, like, all right, we want you to really want her to die. Which then leads me to the next question, because now we're all frothing at the mouth. We're like, oh, I cannot wait for Beatrix to kill this bitch. I hope she fucking guts her. Right. Then we get the eye snatch. Did you like the fact that they left L for dead? So, again, we get into it, like, we talk about what do we think happened. But, in essence, she's taking her eye. She can't see. She's trapped in a trailer with a black mama snake. She's in the middle yeah. of the desert. And, most likely because she has no vehicle, Beatrix takes her Firebird and gets out of there. She's, in all essence, left for dead. Yeah. Did you like that part? I don't think she was actually left for dead because I think her eye was taken out. But I don't think she was anywhere near death. I think she's just banged up, beat up, and blind. I think that's the torture. No, agree. But she's in the middle of the desert. She right, has no vehicle. Gonna, she has no she food. Can't she see. can't see. And there is a black mama snake in Maybe the trailer does, still yeah. with her, you know, and she can't see it. So in all essence, we left her. She's in a tight spot. Oh, big time. Uh, I would say, no, I did like it. It's a, it's either a slow death or, or a torturous life. Did you notice when uh, Beatrix walks out, the, the snake was still there? It just hisses at Yes, it backs it away from her. It, it cowers yeah, it from her. Yeah. 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 I love yeah. it. I mean, great. Yeah. It's a black mamba. She's a black mamba. You right. know what I mean? So yeah. that's yeah, there's that respect kind of level for it. Now, which of the five fight scenes in the two volumes is your favorite? We've got the Bride vs. Nita, mm -hmm. the Bride vs. Gogo, Bride vs. the Crazy 88, Bride vs. Oren, and then Beatrix vs. L. Which is your favorite? I would say the, well, the, the 88s. That's just a fun sequence. Uh, it's so brutal. 
you get the sword play that I'm talking about. So we do get in volume one. We get her just being that samurai killer machine yeah, and taking yeah. on all those people. She's, you know, she's doing her Pai Mei moment, killing all the monks in that bar, so to speak. She's Pai Mei in that moment. I'm going to lean in and agree with you. I do enjoy that. That whole House of Blue Leaves is such a great scene. And it's it's great because it sets up, you know, we think that, oh man, this happened in the first half. Volume two has got to be just, and really westernized. It really pulls back on it, really doesn't give us what we think we're going to get, which is, again, I love the misdirection. I just right. absolutely love it. Chapter 10, Face to Face. We start off with another great side character, Mr. Esteban Viejo. Right. Michael Parks. Uh, Mr. Parks. He's so good. He wasn't supposed to be it. The person who was hired was Cardo Montalban oh. was originally supposed to be it. He couldn't make the table read. So at the table read, Mr. Parks read as he did. They That's liked awesome. it so much. They actually paid Ricardo Montalban because he'd been hired, paid him for a role he never did, wow. and Mr. Parks fills in as Esteban Viejo. Really? All the side characters that Tarantino has in his movies, they are just, they're not moment. wasted. Oh, no. so great. The, yeah, the act is amazing. That whole, la, la, Yeah, the way he <laughs> speaks is just, yeah, I love it. I love it. Creepy. He's like the creepy dad. He's a real gentleman. He's like, I wouldn't have shot you. I just would have cut your face. Yeah. And that was a tough scene when he calls her over and she's got that, you're like, oh, and she's like drooling. Oh, yeah. but yeah. he's a man of leisure. She says, he's a pimp. He's running a brothel in Acuna, Mexico. Why would you cut the face of your product? Like, who's going to want to? Reminds me of that cutting scene in uh, The Unforgiven. Yeah. But it's just like, why would you cut her face? Message to the other girls. I think you can get just as much done taking the pinky finger off. And again, I'm not. <laughs> Again, I'm not suggesting oh, I know. violence towards the, women. In talking with in the, the movie. Film, yeah. I, yes. This man's a pimp. He runs a brothel. He's a right. violent man. I'm just saying. I'm not saying he should be doing any of these things. But if I'm him right. and I'm running a brothel, and for some reason I feel the need that I have to keep one of my ladies in line, I'm not going to damage the product that's going to sell what I'm trying to sell. But see... I, but we talked about this already. You're you're thinking like a normal person the same way. Why do we? Why does True. he just kill the bride when they have the chance? Why is he, you know, messing up his product? Because Agreed. they're sadistic yeah. people. They're sadistic people. You are not sadistic. That's the answer. And you're not a creep. You're not. I did say I would take a finger, but I'm I'm still getting my point across. But I'm not damaging the goods I'm trying to sell. You know? Yeah. Well, he's, yeah. girls are dime a dozen. They're, that's what. It is. <laughs> well, yeah. Pro- probably for him down down yep. in Acuna, Mexico. Yeah, for whatever yep. he does. Yeah. But did you know this was the actual last scene of the film that was shot? Mm, I didn't know that. And they shot it in a real Mexican brothel. And those extras, except for the woman who got her face cut, were actual sex workers from oh, wow. said brothel. So, interesting. I wonder if they got paid. for. I, mean, it must I have, would it must... assume. I would, again, I didn't. There wasn't any more information. So, whatever happened in Acuna, Mexico. Apparently, huh? stayed in Acuna, Mexico. So it's essential, I guess. Yeah. Whatever. And the story that Mr. Esteban talks about with Billy, you know, when he goes to see... Was it Joan Crawfield or Joan Collins? And he's like sucking his thumb because of the blondes. That actually is a story that Kurt Russell told Tarantino. Oh. He went to a drive-in and he saw a movie. And when one of the actresses came on stage when he was younger, he sucked his thumb, whatever <laughs> sexual connotation it was. But yeah, so it's cool that he took that Kurt Russell story and put it into the movie and gave a little nice. bit of uh, character development for our man Bill. Nice. Like it. Now, as I said at the beginning, we get to the Hacienda. In the original script that I had the opportunity to read uh, before I went to the war, so I got to read it. I mentioned, I think, on one of the Bible studies. But the original script, there was no ending of volume one where it said, does she know that her daughter's still alive? Mm-hmm. When you read the script, you didn't know until she's coming into the Hacienda, and there she is when she makes the corner. Right. It's the one thing that really hurts this story. It's the only thing, because it's a very important moment in this film. Because as the viewer, up until this point, if this is one 
one solid film is like the whole bloody affair and you never saw this broken up you are going through the movie with her we are getting revenge for the attempted murder of her and now the death of her daughter the murder of her daughter right. and so we finally were like fuck Bill we're gonna get him we're gonna get this son of a bitch and when she makes the corner and there she is all of us are surprised at the same time her and us so we're like it's a new twist it's the twist from Usual Suspects it's the twist from you know the, the Sixth Sense you know these twists like oh shit we did not see that coming or we probably should have seen it coming but we didn't see it coming I mean obviously we remember it once we get the corner you know we go oh that's right he did say does she know her daughter's alive but it doesn't have the impact that it would have as one whole film right. and that's the only disappointment for me and again I know why he did it I know why he had to do you it to. it makes sense right. but it just takes a little bit of the wind out of your sails because what a great moment it is us thinking you know here she is now what and they, like Bill did this intentionally he sprung it on her he knew she was coming. He knew that right. he was the last one. And he's like, all right, how do you feel now that you know that her daughter's alive? I mean, that's methodical. He's just this fucking sinister son of a bitch. So it does take away when you already know that she's still alive when that moment happens. Yeah, but we get to see, at least we see Beatrice or Kiddo's reaction. That's genuine. So her reaction is what I'm watching. And that's what I mean by Uma's acting there when she sees her daughter. It's that same way when she discovered that she was no longer pregnant when the baby was gone and she screams in the hospital. Oh, and then she sees now her daughter in front of her and hey mommy, you know, bang, 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 or whatever. I killed mommy. And that whole that whole chain of events, and just that acting on Uma's part of she's trying not to cry with both joy and anger at Bill. Everything's combined in her face. Yeah. Like, she, emotions she, are flooding through her. Right. Right, because she wants to kill Bill really badly now to get this daughter away from this guy. Well, also that the fact that she... It's almost worse that the daughter isn't dead for the fact that now she's realizing she's missed four to five years of her life because she's been in a coma because of yeah. this asshole shooting. Like, you know, it's like it would almost been yeah. better that she had been dead because at least we wouldn't have missed out. And now she feels like she's missed out. You know, yeah. like, how, what does her daughter think of her? What, what's the story Bill's told? So many emotions are flooding through her that, you know, it's actually probably worse that she isn't dead. Now mm. that she knows she's alive, she's like, she wouldn't have even gone through all these all this fucking work she would have just gone right to bill she wouldn't even worry about these other fucking people because now it's her daughter so there's a real conflict and bill did did this intentionally he's he's maniacal he's he's yeah. no dummy he definitely knew what the no. fuck he was doing this does lead us to the great dialogue scenes yeah we get two great ones from bill Emilio, their daughter learning about death and Emilio the goldfish while he's using <laughs> a, it's intentional, it's to get us to feel a little uneasy about Bill while he's just being so charming, but he is making a sandwich with a fucking butcher's knife and no one needs to spread whatever, I think it was mustard with he a butcher's knife. makes a great knife. sandwich. does, but it's like, that's a giant fucking butcher's knife. You always just feel uneasy when he's on screen yeah. because of just who he is and what he does, you know. He's being so charming and the way he's just flicking the knife and talking, you know, you're just like, this motherfucker is just oh, yeah. something wrong with it. It's a great sequence with the uh, sandwich making. I don't know. It always makes me hungry when I watch him make that sandwich. It's a poignant little story about his daughter learning about death, which again is great because she learns about death because she's going to learn about it soon again before this night's over. She's going to, we'll get into that in a second, but I'm, I'm curious as what story she must have told her after this. But then, you know, we get the great point. She goes up there, watches right. Shogun Assassin with her daughter and all this fun stuff, and then comes downstairs, and then we have our mono mono talk. And, you know, he hits her with the true syrup. One of my favorite monologues in all of Tarantino land, because I'm a yep, huge Superman too. fan anyways, is his Superman speech about how Superman's always Superman. He doesn't have an alter ego. He has to fake who he is. Everyone else is Bruce Wayne or their Peter Parker, and then they become their character. He was born Superman. He wasn't yeah. turned into this, and he has to pretend great, to be somebody great else. Moment. That's my, uh, so spoiler alert, that is my favorite line or monologue from the film. Yeah, I love what he said. I, I, I wrote it down, or I cut and pasted here. He says, 
now a staple of the superhero mythology is that there's the superhero and there's the alter ego. Batman is actually Bruce Wayne. Spider-Man is actually Peter Parker. When the character wakes up in the morning, he's Peter Parker. He has to put on a costume to become Spider-Man. And it is in that characteristic Superman stands alone. Superman didn't become Superman. Superman was born Superman. When Superman wakes up in the morning, he's Superman. His alter ego is Clark Kent. His outfit with the big red S, that's the blanket he's wrapped in as a baby when the Kents found him. Those were his clothes. What Kent wears, the glasses, the business suit, that's the costume. That's the costume Superman wears to blend in with us. Clark Kent is how Superman views us. And what are the characteristics of Clark Kent? He's weak. He's unsure of himself. He's a coward. Clark Kent is Superman's critique on the whole human race, sort of like Beatrix Kiddo and Mrs. Tommy Plumpton. I love it. It's so good. Look, Tarantino, just the guy can fucking write dialogue. The guy can fucking write and just poignant good dialogue. And did you catch the uh, the nod to one of his earlier films that he wrote? Which, which one are we talking about? Are you calling me a superhero? And Bill goes, I'm calling you a killer. A natural born killer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yeah. That's what uh, Mickey Knox says. He's a natural born killer yeah. when he's in that little so, interview. Great stuff. Now, when I talked about the Reservoir Dogs episode, is Mr. White, when he's trying to calm Mr. Pink, he says, worst place that you can get shot is in the gut, but it takes a long time to die. Bill kind of contradicts this by telling her the worst place you can get shot is in the knee. So even in Tarantino land, we've got uh, difference in opinions. Where's the worst place to get shot? Would you rather be shot in the kneecap or the gut? Where would you, if you, if you know, if you're going to be shot, those are the two places. If a sadistic son of a bitch is like, you're going to get shot. Bud's like, look, you're getting shot. Do you want to be in the kneecap? Do you want to be in the gut? Which one? Well, I'd probably take the kneecap. Maybe I might have a chance to survive. I don't know if I can survive a stomach wound. Yeah. Good point. Good point. All right, so if any, no, <laughs> Ryan yeah, wants to get shot like, in the kneecap. Just shoot him in the kneecap. Yeah, come, come on, shoot, shoot him in the, in the kneecap. kneecap. That's it. That's all he wants. Now, I'm of two minds of this mm-hmm. is the final fight. Yeah. I, again, another nod. It's like when we don't punch through anyone's chest and we've had yeah. this sword. God, she flies over, gets it made. We think, oh, she's going to use it to kill Bill. So there's a part of me that really likes the fact that they don't fight swords. They were supposed to. They were supposed to fight. I don't know if it was because the production was running too long or they just felt like this was a little bit mm-hmm. quicker and it kind of like almost a more poignant like wrap up. But do you wish that they had fought to the death with Hanzo swords or are you happy with that she uses... Paime's patented technique that we forget she probably had learned to finish Bill. To almost be, once again, this whole storyline is basically females being underestimated by most of males in society and then them showing that that was to their own detriment. I think I'm like you. I think we would all like to have seen that, but we got the 88 scene. We got the L driver scene. We've got we got all the scenes anyways. It's almost like you had you had to make a decision. Either it's going to be this balls-out crazy sword fight, like a Luke versus Vader type sequence, or... It's going to be subtle and and more personal. And so I think they went with the right direction, even though there's a fandom enough that wants to see that ultimate showdown. Because I think that's what it was with Bill. I think ultimately this was Bill's movie as well. There's so much carrying in this film. We never saw him really do anything. And so I think that's the bit of the letdown is we never saw Bill in action. We saw him use words, yes. but never any physical action. He does get a scene with Michael Jai White in the uh, special edition. Yeah, that's a deleted scene. I, know. I saw it was, that. And it's right. a great scene where we actually get to yeah. see how good he actually is with the sword and good he is with Kung right. Fu. But for whatever reason, it was cut. It was going to probably fall in right before. It would have been the scene that led up to them, them talking that night with the... 
with the whole, okay. you know, that it was that flashback scene where she's he's taking her to meet Pai Mei to, to train her. So I think that's where kind of we got cut. But okay. if anyone wants to see Bill in action, Volume yeah, Two is it's extra scenes. It, it is there. Yes, yeah, right. I forgot about that. I have seen that, but it's been a few years. Um, that being said, yeah, I, I get it. That's the initial viewing reaction. Like, oh, nothing happened. But the five point, what is it called again? Boy, I always forget it. The the five point palm exploding heart technique. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Boy, I, I I never remember the word order. Anyways, it's great to see that happen. It, and the only way that could have happened is maybe just like they did across the table from each other. I don't know if she would have been able to do that after a big sword fight. So it had to be kind of, it just has to be that quick right there. He didn't see it coming. If you were able to learn the five-point palm exploding heart technique. Would you use it? And if so, how often? Oh boy, well, never, I hope. <laughs> That's scary. Uh, boy, I, I don't know if I w- would want that kind of power. I mean, literally lethal weapons as your hands. It's crazy. Yes. That's a scary thing. It's a scary power to have. I, I don't know if I'd like to have that, to be honest with you. My question is, how do you know that you've got it right? You know, it's, it's one of those things where, like, if you do it right, a guy takes, what, five steps and they die? Like, how do you know that you've actually properly done it properly? Like, yeah, you know, like, know. what's the teaching technique? I always wonder how he taught. He must have just been like, you do this, you do that. So... You wonder if if she learned it, did she? Hope for the best, I guess. You can't really practice on people. She must have had to use it on somebody to see if they she got it right. Like maybe use it on the cow or a pig or something. I don't think Bill's the first one she killed. No, she's no, she's done it before. You're right. So before we leave this part, we get your final questions. Did you know that every villain killed on screen, except the ones in the anime sequences in all of Kill Bill, are killed by a female character? Wow. Now that would have changed had there been. The Bill scene inserted. Okay. He kills Michael J. White's character, and so that would have been right. different. But in the actual film, from start sure. to finish, from volume one through volume two, all actual live-action deaths are committed by the females. They kill the villains in the film. Nice. And that's a wrap on volume two. Now, before we finish Bill off with Pai Mei's patented five-point palm-exploding heart technique, there's only one thing left to do. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. Mr. Smith, what was your favorite song on the soundtrack for the whole bloody affair to include volumes one and volume two? What is your favorite song from this fourth film from Tarantino? Okay, so I'm going to say Malaguena Salarosa, which is uh, by Chingon. Chingon. That's the ending. Yes, sir. That's the end. Love it. Because there's something very emotional about the way that is edited together with that music because it takes you through the whole journey of the bride. Whenever I watch, obviously, Kill Bill 2, I really enjoy that that end. I agree. But it's like there's such a great montage of all the best moments from Kill Bill 1 and 2. And that's a great song, which is like, is Robert Rodriguez's band, isn't it? Yes, it is. He doesn't sing, but he's the guitar player. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. So there's just something extremely emotional and kind of uplifting about that. And uh, yeah, so that is my, that would be my favorite from the whole bloody affair. Mr. Rebelkin, what was your favorite song on the soundtrack oh, combined? So you can take Vine 1 and Vine 2 of all right. the music in this movie. What is your favorite song completely? Now, you're going to be mad at me. I'm going to cheat. Feel Don't free. get mad at me. Well, because I I answered for part like I like part two better overall. I think regarding like the songs, the scenes, the dialogue, part two is just so such a rich, full film. So I kind of cheated and just gave you my favorites from part one because I never got to talk about part one. 
if that makes sense. Because ultimately, I'd just pick part two mostly over everything anyway, so it'd be redundant. So I was like, oh, I thought I would treat you or the listeners to my favorite parts <laughs> of part one, if that makes sense. Fine, go right ahead. Okay, The Battle Without Honor or Humanity by, I think it's called Hotai or Hotei. Yes. And I, again, I didn't realize this is like legit, like, I guess Japanese maybe, uh, but he's a, like a like a solo guitar guy, like a Joe Saturani. And yeah. I, went on, I went on YouTube and said, oh, this guy rocks. So I'm just blown away. Mr. Smith, who is your favorite character from Kill Bill? It's got to be Pai, mate. So we've got, Damn we've got good So we've got Gordon Louie, Gordon Liu, and uh, Sonny Chiba, basically. Two legends of Asian cinema, basically. Yes. Mr. Rebelka, who is your favorite character from the entirety of the film, from one through two, through the entire length of Kill Bill, the whole bloody affair? Yeah, Beatrix and Bill. I mean, they just, both the actors and the characters run the series or run the movies together. They're just, every scene they're both in, it's just engaging. And with the honorable mention, of course, to Bud, Michael Mass's Bud is just incredible as well. It's, it, this is so hard. This is like asking me to pick my favorite kids. I, I hate this. I really hate these <laughs> questions because I, there's so much to, to mine from. I can't. It's hard to choose. I like to make guests uncomfortable. It's fun. It's fun Thank to put you. you in the hot seat. Mr. Smith, what was your favorite line or monologue from Kill Bill? I was going to say the Superman analogy thing that Bill gets into with the... With the bride, with Beatrix. With yep. the, yeah, with the similarities between Superman and the bride. But I, it's a quite a simple exchange that I like when the bride says to Bill you and I have unfinished business and Bill says baby you ain't kidding I just love that little just that little it's just such a simple little exchange but I I just love the simplicity of it you know it's just such a great little moment between the two because they don't have much do they really now, Mr. Balkan, what was your favorite line or monologue from the film? And again, it can be the same answer as you had in Volume 2, in our Volume 2 episode. Well, I, I will say I love this part. Okay, what makes Volume 1, well, I love both almost the same. But Volume 1 has some incredible moments in the Hatari Hanzo sequence when she goes to uh, get that sword made. I love that whole sequence. That's my favorite. So when, when he, my favorite line or monologue is when uh, Hatari Hanzo is giving the sword to Beatrix, and he says, I am finished doing what I swore an oath to God 28 years ago to never do again. I've created something that kills people, and in that purpose, I was a success. I've done this because, philosophically, I am sympathetic to your aim. I can tell you with no ego, this is my finest sword. If on your journey you should encounter God, God will be cut. I just that would be my God. favorite line of any of his movies, that little part that if on your journey oh. you encounter God, God will be cut. I, ah. It's a chef's it, kiss of a line. It, yeah, it, it, that that line that, that that's that is like gold dialogue because there's so much going on here. Him breaking his oath, but at the same time, he still kills it. He makes it the, the best weapon ever. Like the one weapon that he makes with his oath, he's like, oh, if I'm gonna break my oath, I'm gonna break one. Exactly. That can God. If you're gonna break yeah. it, you're gonna you're gonna do the one that's gonna kill anybody. So it's like fantastic. I said, if I step out of my wife, she's gonna be ha. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm gonna blow my whole marriage and family, it better be exactly. Dead. Mr. Smith, what was your favorite scene from Kill Bill? Okay, I'm going to go with the sequence of the bride and Pai Mei. The cruel tutelage of Pai Mei? Yeah, basically, which is about 16 minutes long. It's literally like from the minute she starts walking up the stairs to when when she... Right, okay. So it's literally from the minute she walks up the stairs to Pai Mei's dojo, I guess, or whatever, to when she busts out of the... Great, you know, when she busts out of the coffin with the 
with the exploding palm technique. <laughs> that whole part of the film is just almost like you feel like you don't really... Like, you're so mesmerised by the Pyme, the creative choices of the Pyme, that you forget, like I said earlier, you forget that the Pyme's buried six feet deep at this. And she's, <laughs> and she's remembering, she's remembering her training with Pyme. So that's kind of like, I always do that whenever I watch Kill Bill Part 2. I always forget. I always get so engrossed in that Pyme sequence. I'm like, hang on a minute, she's fucking buried. It's a great and, training sequence. Yeah, it's so yeah, because it, it, it's just her remembering what she what she's capable of, thanks to him. And she busts out of the ground, <laughs> evil dead. And her arm busts out of the ground, evil dead style. And yes. She's, and she's just and uh, she's just sort of victorious. And that's and also the music in that part. Oh, it's gorgeous. Which is, yeah. more, which is more any more iconic yep. stuff. Where it's just glorious. It's just she, yeah. you know, it's a glorious moment. And she's just yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. So, yeah, that, that's my choice of that scene. Mr. Balkan, what was your favorite scene from the entirety of Kill Bill? Well, I kind of said it there. When uh, the bride travels to Okinawa, Japan to get the sword from Hatari Hanzo, um, that whole sequence, they're, they're, them with, when she pretends to be like a bub, uh, bubbly little tourist and she speaks Japanese and they see, oh, you speak Japanese and the whole, and then it just turns serious. It's uh, it's like comedy than serious. I, I love that whole sequence. So that's that's a pretty darn good scene. And the Hatari Hanzo scenes are they're tough to beat. And that's a wrap on our supersized seventh Whole Bloody Fair episode. I would once again like to thank my special guests, Steve Smith of the Way Past Cool Podcast and Ryan Rebelkin of the Rocky Series Podcast, the Worst of the Best Podcast, and It's a Long Road, the Rambo Series Podcast for joining me again today. I had a fucking blast discussing our love of QT, Kung Fu, and Spaghetti Western movies, as well as tackling Tarantino's blood-soaked action masterpiece, Kill Bill. Now you can find the link to both Steve and Ryan's podcast and their podcast socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now be sure to join me again next week as we welcome our very first female and American-born guest to the show, Miss Sam Aversa, contributor on the Metal Core Nerds podcast. She'll be sitting down with me to dissect and discuss the most female-driven movie of QT's to date, Death Proof. So until then, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.